Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 57 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, and as jo- I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we haven't done the show in a month, and, you know, things kind of happened the last month. Maybe there's a reason we took a whole month off, you know? Yeah, I didn't even realize it's been that long, man. I mean, what was really going on was we were preparing for a big battle on a five-star match game. And that was the most important thing in either of our lives during that time. And now that it's <laughs> over, you know, and finally released, we're ready to be friends again. Yeah, so it's, between the last episode and this one and this episode of Through the Years, we uh, made another appearance, Matt and I, on uh, Joe Gagne's uh, show, The Five-Star Match Game, along with our good friend Justin Shapiro. And as usual, it was if, if you're a fan of wrestling game shows in podcast form, of Matt coming off as smart and charming, and as me and of me looking like an idiotic buffoon, as always, I think you'll be satisfied with that episode. I was ready to get on board with it until you said the part about me being smart and charming. <laughs> oh, boo. Um, oh, yeah, you're the only so- one who's allowed to be self-deprecating. <laughs> exactly. And... uh but, you know, it, it, and we got another thing to plug, too, because between the last episode of Through the Years and this one, we also – we told you last episode we were going to do this, but we put up an episode of uh, Shimmer Herstory, uh, the great Shimmer podcast that our friends uh, host. And we put one episode about that on the feed. And in case, you know, you, you should listen to that if you like that show, um, they have – their entire library is on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which we're still on as well, even though we also have our own feed. It's – it's very confusing, except not really, because we're basically everywhere. You you can't avoid us anymore. Yeah, exactly. By the way, another and, and that's and you should everyone should listen to the Shimmer Hursary. It was a great episode, and it's generally a great show. So, um, and um, we will actually we're scheduled to have one of the hosts of that show on this show in the very near future. So look out for that. Um, but um, you know, one of the other reasons that. Um, that it took us a while to record this podcast is this was another extremely long ROH show that we're reviewing today. And, um, there's been a lot of those lately. And, uh, I actually think this is the last like super mega ultra long one for a while. Like, I think this is the last double DVD for a few, like maybe like eight or nine shows, something like that. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah, for those who aren't watching along, this show is – it's a five-hour double DVD or double VHS if you bought it at the time in the old format because I think it was – they were still sell, also selling VHS along with DVDs at this point. Yo, they definitely awesome. they definitely were and they were coming out much faster. And um, this this was this is a a uh, it's a five hour total watch except the last hour of this show is um basically just highlights of the last year, you know, of, of Ring of Honor history. So really it's a four hour show plus an hour of highlights. Although according to a, a Dave Meltzer live report, live the show was actually five hours long. And on top of that, which we'll get to in a, in a couple minutes, there was a whole do or die afternoon car, which I have no idea how long that went, but let's say that went two hours. You potentially would have been in for like a seven hour night of entertainment if you bought tickets to both. And the show was so long um, Gabe actually kind of jokes about it at a couple points during the show. Like he kind of acknowledges how long the show is. Like I think when Ebison and uh Billy Ken Kid wrestles, he says something like they were, you know, they were here around here. So we decided, you know, this show didn't have enough matches on. And Gabe's kind of being sarcastic at that point. Well, this is like kind of like the last of these kind. Of, like they did a bunch of them in late 2004 and this, 
And then you don't really see too many shows quite like this for a while, where it's like quite this long. Yeah, I, people would always complain about Ring of Honor shows being too long, but yeah, this is definitely for for this era kind of a high point, I think, in in that kind of excess. And um, going back to uh, Shimmer Herstory, one more point that kind of dovetails into it is uh, Stacy, one of the two co-hosts of the of the show. She sent us a note on uh, a little Ring of Honor mystery. You know how I love my Ring of Honor mysteries, Matt, that we had on the last episode where doing research, I found that uh, Allison Danger's official website back in the day was prettypieceofflesh.com. And I was just puzzled to what that came from. And uh, – of course, as always, our listeners are uh, smarter than us. So Stacy had sent us this note. She wrote, "Quick note from the show on Danger being a website making uh, on Danger making a website called Pretty Piece of Flesh. That's actually the name of a song off the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. It's also originally a, a line from Shakespeare. And according to Google, Danger used it at some point as entrance music. However, it's not the music she uses in Shimmer or any Ring of Honor I've seen her in, which is a kind of soaring Euro techno sounding song." Pretty Piece of Flesh is a heavier Nine Inch Nails style industrial tune. I haven't seen her use it anywhere yet, but Google says. Maybe in the future compared to 2005 slash 6. Anyway, that explains the seemingly problematic website. So, yeah, so uh, thank you again. That That's a nice – that's a great little note. And it also um, it also exposes that we're both ignorant to Shakespeare, Matt. Well, to, uh, I, I mentioned this to, uh, to Stace when she, um, when she sent me that message. So – I, you know, read a lot of Shakespeare in high school. I took a I took a Shakespeare class in college. I took a Renaissance era English literature class in graduate school. I've wow. taken lots of classes related to Shakespeare, and I have never once—it's embarrassing to say—never once read or seen Romeo and Juliet. Uh, this is embarrassing, but like I, it's one of those things I I always say, ah, oh, I should do that just to say I've done it, and plus it would help when I'm watching Jeopardy. Rest in peace, Alex Trebek. Um, but like I have literally only read one Shakespeare play in my life, and that was because school required it. It was a Midsummer Night's Dream. That's uh-huh. literally the only Shakespeare I've ever read, which is probably not even the best Shakespeare play to read, like Hamlet. And well, it's it's not as deep as uh, as some of the yeah. other ones. That's for yeah, sure. But it's, it's good entertainment. Thing. Um, but a lot of Shakespeare talk on this episode to start off, people will say, maybe, I don't, probably not. It's more than zero, so there's that. More more than zero is more than anyone expected. So, Uh moving on, a bunch of news happens between the last Ring of Honor show and this one. Uh, first off, Pro Wrestling Insider wrote around this time, Ring of Honor had start, has started taking a stricter stance towards those bootlegging their tapes and DVDs of late. A number of bootlegger, bootleg, bootleggers, not bootlickers, have received cease and desist letters, and I've heard of two instances where Ring of Honor owner Kerry Silken has personally called those selling tapes, asking them to discontinue the practice. So, uh, Matt, I'm kind of the two minds of this, because on one hand, I realize, you know, piracy, especially for small mom-and-pop businesses, can definitely have a negative effect, but it's kind of, but it's hard to quantify like how much of a negative effect versus how much of a positive, because I can tell you that like my first Ring of Honor shows were bootleg shows, and then I ended up spending a large amount of money buying the official Ring of Honor shows directly from Ring of Honor, but for a couple reasons, I was at the time during like the early, the Rick, the Rob Feinstein era, for just a variety of reasons, I was more comfortable trying Ring of Honor from like a, you know, a bootlegger that I, uh, 
trusted over the rfvideo.com. And then once I found I liked it, and then once Ring of Honor did the switch over, and you know, I, I realize I'm for every story like me, there's probably a story of someone that maybe would have bought a DVD but did, didn't because they found a torrent in the years that came later or, you know, they someone bootlegged it for a cheap price. But at least for me, like bootlegging was turned me into a regular paying some bills Ring of Honor wrestling fan. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I used to go to these, these um, Ring of Honor speakeasies where you had to like knock on a bookshelf and get back there and everyone was like watching <laughs> Ring of Honor DVDs, you know, all these bootleggers. Um, no, I, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think it's impossible to say if it was a net positive or negative, but I guess, I don't know, Carrie probably had a better idea than we did and he seemed to think it was not a good idea. So, um, so he was calling them up like he was the president of the United States and they were members of like a state canvassing board or something, um, in the Midwest. But, um, I don't know how closely you're following American news to understand that <laughs> reference, but um, I, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, I guess I'm. Uh, I can't deny that I have been uh, that I have partaken in some situations that you're describing as well before I ended up becoming a legitimate customer of various things, and so so in that in that case, it it, it does you know it does work out that way. But I guess it's sort of like the old. Um, I don't know, the old Napster debate, right? Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it, it's really impossible to quantify like how many, you know, bootlegging and the ease nowadays with the ease of online available, online, like really, you know, you can get shows pretty much instantly after they happen if you know where to look, depending on the promotion. It, it's it's hard to quantify how many people that prevent keeps them from spending money that they would have otherwise spent and how many people does that hook them in and get them to eventually spend money like it's just you know the wrestle announcement that brandon thurston should get on that he should conduct a survey because he knows all the pro- he knows all the solutions man he he's he's the smart man um another story uh the pro wrestling torch wrote the next tryouts for the ring of honor wrestling school are on march 6th the school is located outside of Philadelphia, and CM Punk is the head trainer. Ring of Honor recently upgraded the school by adding fir- adding new equipment, including a gym. The first class of the Ring of Honor Wrestling School has already had the opportunity to work in several different promotions, including Ring of Honor. This almost seems a little disingenuous, Matt, to say. I mean, I guess technically the students did have a chance to work in Ring of Honor up to this point, but like not exactly getting a lot of ring time or or an opportunity to do much, but um bump and sell for people in squash matches that is working (laughs) but uh i mean yes it is and i mean shane hackenor got the opportunity to film shows at ringside which is a different kind of work but um i think this would be a cm punk's last class because obviously he'd be uh out of ring of honor in in probably like around what five six months from the time uh we're gonna we're covering right now yeah and this is the um this i guess would be the pele primo class yeah yeah that second I guess this would be the second class, right? Yeah. yeah. This would be if Shane Hagedorn and, and company were – and Davey Andrews and all those guys that were class one. Yeah. So this is around the time where they were recruiting for the second and final punk class. Uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote, Ring of, Honor, uh, Ring of Honor announced that their merchandising department is about to start a new series featuring empty arena matches presented in a very unique way. Matt, this story it feels like for like – the last 10 or 15 episodes of Through the Years, it started in the, in, in the Rob era, I think. They kept hyping that, like, 
we're going to start a series. I think at first it was just we're going to make a DVD that has a Steve Carino versus Teddy Hart empty arena match. And I thought, oh, that's a Rob Feinstein idea. And if I recall, like after Feinstein was out of the company, there was a story where Ring of Honor was like, we're still doing it. And then we haven't heard about it, anything like that in a long time. And now to this day, now we got all these months later, another story saying, yep, Ring of Honor is still going to do a whole series featuring empty arena matches. And again, I don't think they ever did one empty arena match, let alone a series based on empty arena matches. If they did one, they certainly never released it. Yeah. Um, and of course, if you never released it, who would know, Matt? There's no fans watching. But um, That's right. It, it, yeah, it's interesting that these ideas seem to really capture their, atten- their their imagination to the point where for months and months it keeps coming up in news, you know, in different newsletters, and they uh, never did. And looking back, I think um, again, I think we mentioned this before, but I think the pandemic has maybe realized that you know a lot of us realize how important fans are to most wrestling matches. So probably a good idea that they didn't do a lot of that or any of that. But uh, just an interesting little note. Um, the torch also wrote ring of honor officials are looking to add to the tag team division and we'll try out some new combos on upcoming shows. Matt, you know what this means? We're getting the air devils very soon. Matt. That's right. The, the incredible run of the air devils, which we will get into also, on a future um, episode. So cheddar cheese, pretzel and cracker, new, new, new combos. <laughs> never, never mind. Uh. Uh, um, I've only had one combo, just like I've only read one Shakespeare. I've only had the pizza combos ever, Matt. Another shameful revelation. Yeah, it's not the um, most. It's not the most common combo. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we've got a couple um, wrestling events that kind of are related to the Ring of Honor show. One, obviously, very related. And these are our last little news bits. The first one was this was not a Ring of Honor affiliated show, but I feel like this was one of the first. Maybe not the first, but like one of the early examples of Ring of Honor reaching such a cachet in the indie scene that other indies would like make big super shows that were basically built around us booking a lot of Ring of Honor talent to come in and wrestle our local guys. So this was a big uh, Montreal wrestling super show that happened at this time. And this isn't every match, but this is just the uh, the big Ring of Honor kind of featured matches that happened. Uh, Frankie the Mobster beat Roderick Strong with a choke slam powerbomb in one hell of a match. And I think this is, this is from a PW Insider report. So there's a few little comments about the quality of it. I can't attest to it. I haven't seen the show, but, uh, Kevin Steen beat Samoa Joe, Excess six, Excess 69, and the generic luchador El Generico in a four-way dance that was worth every penny we paid to see the show. After Joe destroyed Generico with a muscle buster, Steen frog splashed Joe and pinned Generico to get a shot at Austin Aries later in the night. Ring of Honor champion Austin Aries beat Kevin Steen with the 450 splash. It was a sanctioned Ring of Honor championship match with Ref Hansen of the Ring of Honor as the head referee for this match. The crowd was left standing and applying after these two men gave their all in a very good match. And then your main event, the final match of the evening, Matt, Pierre-Carl Ouellette, P- PCO, took on CM Punk. In a solid belt, PCO beat Punk cleanly with a peace liner, a decapitating clothesline. Punk used his cunning most of the match because he's clearly used to wrestling smaller guys and couldn't do most of his moves against the huge PCO. This live report also wrote, It was announced that Ring of Honor peer champion John Walters was not able to do the show because of the massive snowstorms in the USA, but maybe back down the line. So that's a pretty 
that's like most of the top names in Ring of Honor all booked on this card. It's pretty crazy. Include and then of course, PCO still a fixture in wrestling today. Recently, a Ring of Honor cha- a future Ring of Honor World Champion. Man, I mean, yeah, that would Kevin be that would be a dream match today. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. You would think like. It's crazy just to realize how, like, even though PCO in the last few years kind of had his his renaissance, you know, his last big run, but, like, he was still around, you know, in various parts of the wrestling scene 15, 16 years ago. I mean, hit wrestling CM Punk, apparently, which I had completely was either not aware of or forgotten, but very interesting, Kyle. I wonder if that is – that's I wonder if that is on tape somewhere because that's a pretty loaded card. Um but the other card that related to Ring of Honor that is not the show we're covering today is the show that happened in the afternoon before the show we're covering today because it was another do-or-die pre-show. This is the fourth do-or-die. Uh, Mike Johnson wrote that uh, Ring of Honor held another matinee do-or-die event at, on Saturday afternoon, February 19th, featuring a number of undercard talents and independent performers. And he has the complete results, a live review of the show. Lacey pinned Alice in Danger, so a rare Ring of Honor women's match at this period. Um, the Christopher Street Connection was back, Matt, with Ariel apparently even escorting them. She'll even her, even she returned, and they defeated the Heartbreak Express. Uh, Mike wrote the Expresser from Full Impact Pro in Florida and did some funny Mike work before the match. Vordell Walker from the Florida Independence defeated Special K's Cheech in a squash match where apparently Bordell looked very good. We'll talk more about him later. Uh, Ricky Landell and Alex Law, two of Steve Carino's students, defeated Davey Andrews and Anthony Franco, two of CM Punk students. And each, I think it sounds like each team's uh, trainer was in their corner. Fast Eddie Vegas, Fast Eddie Matt, he came back with Dave Prezak in his corner, and he defeated El Generico, um, Josh Daniels, and Eric Cannon in a good four-way bout. Uh, Mike writes, if there were Ever any question that a huge majority of the Ring of Honor audience are fans who live and die by the internet, Generico's entrance got the biggest pop of the afternoon, with the crowd going absolutely nuts and treating him like a top-flight star. Vegas has really upped his game from the last time I saw him work in November. Then up next was B-Boy from CCW and Pro Wrestling Guerrilla, and he defeated Kevin Steen. Uh, Mike writes, Steen, making his Ring of Honor debut, got a huge reaction coming out. And then your main event, Matt was the full Impact Pro champion, Homicide, I guess defending that title. This was, of course, by this point, Gabe was also booking uh, FIP as kind of a side promotion slash almost like a pseudo-developmental brand for Ring of Honor. And he defeated Matt Antonio Banks, for which some may not know, may know him better as MVP. And uh, Mike wrote, Banks has a good look. He cut a promo before the match and seemed a little nervous. CM Punk attacked Homicide and stole the FIP belt after the bell, which was missed by most of the crowd as they headed out the door. So uh, I think Meltzer wrote that the crowd looked to be 350 people, and it only cost $5 a ticket to see that kind of card. So, uh, Matt, this was notable for, this was, in fact, Kevin Steen's first ever match in Ring of Honor, and this was El Generico's second match in Ring of Honor. His first would have been, of course, as the Weapon of Mass Destruction. Yeah, his first, match as, El, his first match as El Generico. Yes, exactly. And uh, pretty, pretty. Uh, uh, this might be the most star-studded do-or-die they've had. I mean... Yeah, it's a good, it's a good group of guys there that they got in that, in, that, uh, in that card. It was probably a pretty good show. 
And uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote about the Do or Die show, Rave Honor Management came away impressed with Kevin Steen, El Generico, and Vordell Walker after seeing their performances on the February 19th Do or Die 4 event, the afternoon show in Elizabeth, New Jersey. They will be on future shows. I feel there are a number of people that can make an immediate impact on Ring of Honor, Gabe says. In fact, the only real problem now is finding the right spot to push them. We are in a similar situation we were in last year when we lost the TNA talent. There were a number of guys like Austin Aries, Roderick Strong, Jack Evans, Alex Shelley, Rocky Romero, and Ricky Reyes that just needed the right spot to come in and make an impact. They were able to do that when the spots opened up because of the TNA situation. The next crop is here and ready, and all they need is the right opportunity. Um... I mean, El Generico and Kevin Steen would become stars in Ring of Honor, but not in this kind of first run. They're on the precipice of getting. Yep, they were two years. They were two years away from actually being, uh, like, kind of assimilated into the roster for real. And Vordell Walker would get a few future bookings, but again, we'll talk. We can talk about that when we get to a segment on the main show. It. He's kind of a mystery about what happened to Vordell Walker because he came in with a lot of hype, which we'll get to. And then one last note from this show. So this was uh, DM'd to me by a mutual friend of the show, uh, someone you know pretty well, Matt. Uh, Tom Feely, uh, SureDog.com writer. He's a great writer. If you, he writes the uh, UFC previews. He's a great follow on Twitter if you want a, a guy who just knows his stuff about UFC. But who? friend of ours, <laughs> <laughs> you, you might vaguely know Tom. Never, Feely, never, Matt. never, uh, never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> you might have seen him around your neighborhood, but um. Matt, I mean, uh, Tom sent us a note. He wrote, random completionist note. I'm listening to some old podcast and was listening to Kevin Steen's Art of Wrestling appearance from 2011. He mentions he was supposed to be the mass weapon of destruction, number two or whatever, but got injured the week before and Generico stepped in. As he tells it, they were getting booked at CZW and some other places and they were at the Danielson Liger show and gave their tape to Gabe. So, yeah, that, that's a little background that I, uh, did not have at the time. I, I I should really listen, go back and rewatch a lot of those Kevin Steen shoot interviews, but he just has so many and shoot interviews are so much harder to comb for like nuggets of information that would be good for the podcast compared to uh, anything written that I can just quickly, you know, read. you can read a, a lot quicker than listen to a three hour podcast because I don't do that 1.5 X speed. Listen, garbage that cr- Cretinous monsters like Joe Gagne to do, but uh, it, it also it also makes sense. Like they they did the promos where they said this new weapon of mass destruction like lost parts or something like that. It was smaller than it was supposed to be, and all that stuff. So I guess that actually kind of makes sense that um, that it would have been Kevin Steen and not El Generico. Yeah, d- definitely. So that's an interesting little piece of uh, I guess Ring of Honor minutia or trivia you know that it originally was uh, Kevin Steen that was supposed to make his Ring of Honor debut at Final Battle 2004 but that brings us finally to the show we're covering tonight and that is the Ring of Honor 3rd Anniversary Celebration Part 1, which took place February 19th, 2005, from the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of 1,200 fans. Um, so Ring of Honor 3rd Anniversary Celebration Part 1, this was the first time that Ring of Honor kind of took their anniversary celebration and split up into more than one show. It was a single standalone show this weekend, and then the next weekend they did a double shot, which they called Part 2 and Part 3. This wasn't the first time they had ever kind of co-branded multiple shows with the same name. They did that with Death Before Dishonor 2 on the in 2004. They and did the Weekend of Thunder. Reborn. Part 1, 
Yeah. But this was the first time they did that with third anniversary celebration and did it turned into actually a three show branding. And this was a big success for Ring of Honor. I'll go to uh, the Observer. They wrote Dave wrote the February 19th show in Elizabeth, New Jersey, the first of three third anniversary shows came off strong with 1,200 fans, which was way up from the 750 that Jushin Liger drew on December 4th. They are also ex- expecting the two shows coming up on February 25th in Dayton and February 26th in Chicago Ridge to be up from usual. Although March advances thus far aren't good, it appears between word of mouth and everything else that Ring of Honor business is edging upwards. So yeah, Matt, uh, you know, we had just come off of Gabe, I think on the, we talked about on the last show, he said how the Christmas DVD sales for Ring of Honor were the best ever and was like the best, one of the best moments he had had in Ring of Honor so far and that it was encouraging them to run way more shows in, in 2005. And now, you know, we get an audience that's a full 450 more people here than Jushin Liger. So uh, kind of surprising, quite frankly. Not that this is a bad card, but to see them do that kind of bump, I don't know if over uh, Jushin Liger and uh, I don't know if that's just word of mouth or... If I had to guess, I would say word of mouth combined with a lot of people really enjoying the recent tapes combined with them you know more time being passed between the uh the scan from the scandal that really put a bad taste in people's mouths so they're more comfortable going to roh i think it's just the building of momentum which i guess is a you know that's the right way to do it right you you uh you just put out a good product and more people start to uh get into it also just re-looking over at this observer quote which i copied word for word i think dave screwed things up here because i don't think the jushin liger show was uh december 4th i think that was all-star extravaganza 2 wasn't correct. that correct yeah which would have been also in new jersey but that was a uh, punk joe three three of course plus bobby heenan versus jim Cornette in the managerial war but either way still very good crowd for ring of honor at this time especially with this card and then finally, one last bit of little news surrounding the show before we can finally talk about the show proper from PW Insider. Former Ring of Honor champion Xavier was on the was at the February 19th of Elizabeth, New Jersey event visiting. No word on if he'll be returning to promotion anytime soon. He was used as an extra on this week's SmackDown taping in Philadelphia during a JBL segment. So I never, you know, this is another little minor Ring of Honor mystery where we keep seeing in the newsletters that, you know, obviously uh, Xavier was injured. He you know, they said he'd be out for months and months, but he'd come back. We kept reading in the newsletters, oh, he's going to come back. He's going to come back at this point, at this point. He's backstage at a show, and I think he's working in other places at this point. And he, he never comes back other than way off in the future for like a one-time title challenge when Brian Danielson's champion, you know, and maybe something else. But really, like, he never gets a regular run ever again. And certainly not anytime soon. Um, yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, that's true. I, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's just just a weird little thing, you know. Maybe someone, just like the the great pretty piece of flesh mystery was solved for us. Maybe someone listening can solve the. Uh, and as always, we'll give our contact info at the end of the episode. But if you have an answer to this incredible ROH unsolved mystery, by unsolved mystery, I mean just something I don't happen to know because clearly, if I don't know it, it's a mystery. Please let us know. But. Finally, show proper. Uh, 
We open with Alex Shelley backstage. Uh, Shelley says he's finally gotten a hold of Jack Evans and he's going to meet with him today. Alex has to, uh, says he has to know where Jack stands. And he's confident that once he lays out his case to Jack, Jack's going to be on his side and not Austin Aries and Roderick Strong's side in this big, uh, you know, Jack Evans at this point is the, uh, the child that, uh, Generation Next is fighting for over, custody over in the, uh, divorce. But Jack at this point just walks in. He, he apparently he was just feet away and Alex Shelley did not know this. Uh, Jack says he overheard Alex talking and tells Shelly that it's just business, not personal, but he's signing with Generation Next. He then calls Shelly a failure, which seems awfully personal to me, and says he needs to end the beef, that Alex needs to end the beef with Generation Next and stay out of their business. Jack says that he doesn't want to see Alex get hurt, but he will get hurt, and Alex knows this, man. So yeah, just a, a very quick, um, you know, they didn't tease this out for months and months. This will, you know, what, who size Jack Evans on? This is a very quick end to that little question. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's fine, but they, yeah, they definitely could have gotten more legs out of that one. But they, I guess that, that's just not what they were going for. Yeah. And uh, next up, we get a go somewhere else backstage. We're seeing Punk find Steve Carino. Uh, Punk asks Steve how his hand is. It's all taped up. Carino says it's broken. Uh, Punk is grinning. Crino is very grumpy, and Crino wants, in fact, wants to know why is Punk so happy right now. Uh, Punk says he just had the best workout at the Rexplex gym, and actually he's happy because it's Ring of Honor's third anniversary, and he's wrestling Spanky tonight. And he points out that they've never wrestled each other, so that they're in a singles match before. I guess they've done some tag work maybe in Zero One. He says they're both excited about getting to wrestle each other tonight. Punk asks why Crino is in such a bad mood. Steve says his hand is broken, and he says it happened doing a top rope move of all things in Japan. He says my kid's tuition went up $1,000, and I haven't seen my girlfriend in six weeks. Uh, Creole says he came back to Ring of Honor to help Punk with Generation Next, and now some kid is trying to make his name off Creole's Crino's name. Uh, Creole says that's what he was doing five years ago, making his name off Young Punk's. Or older guys, I guess. Uh, Steve says he wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for Punk. And he's just here playing around. And Punk is just here playing around in a good mood. Uh, Punk, for his part, doesn't appreciate Steve's attitude. And he offers to help Crino just like Crino helped him. Steve instead just vents some more about his Ring of Honor career and leaves, telling Punk, I'll see you out there. Punk at this point then says, I'm not going to let Crino ruin my good mood. He says, without naming names or mentioning specific things that have happened, Ring of Honor had a hell of a year last year, seeing the highs of highs and lowest of lows. Uh, Punk mentions that he won the tag titles in his hometown. He had the series of matches with Samoa Joe, and he had the feud with Moff and Whitmer. Uh, Punk says when he wins tonight... He's going to be right back in contention for the Ring of Honor World title, and he's going to win it this year. He also says that he's going to get rid of Generation Next, just like he got rid of Christopher Daniels. Punk ends by saying he's going to see everyone out there in 2005. So, um, Matt, you know, a lot going on here. I guess before I just get your thoughts, the w- one thing we should mention is PW Insider. I'll just take a quote from them. Steve Carino went, underwent hand surgery yesterday. He has told people who have asked that he's not going to miss his booking this weekend where he is scheduled to face Roderick Strong. So not only was C- Steve Carino's broken hand legit, he apparently had the surgery for it in like the week before this show. So pretty wild. Yeah, wrestlers, man. <laughs> I I, uh, I don't know if it, at this point in time do we – do we say like that's you know we respect that or do we say that's dumb or both? I think it's kind of dumb, but at the same time, I guess I would say 
hand is a bit different than like if this was a neck injury or even like a knee or back injury i'd say what are you doing but a hand is something i, I mean we'll see with this match tonight that Crino does pretty well for a guy with a broken hand in a cast you know yeah i mean uh, yes he definitely does um carino of course in the promo has to talk about how he was the big heel now he's the big baby face it's weird that he has to throw stuff like that into every single one of his promos yeah he's he's a big fan of that and of course it's another weird thing because that we get on the rewatch where it definitely seems like they're teasing a carino punk feud down the line and we know that we never get it because uh, Creo has one of his little outs with uh, Ring of Honor, and uh, Punk finds other things to do. So probably, another- probably other better things, honestly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, we'll see one of those better things kind of kicks off on the show. But we then go to another backstage promo. You can tell this is a double DVD release, and uh, this time it's Samoa Joe with his protege Jay Lethal. Joe says a lot of people wonder what he'll do now without the Ring of Honor title. He says he's wondered that himself. Uh, Joe then says there's one characteristic that separates the good men from the great men, and that's ambition. And Joe says, my new ambition is to become the first ever Ring of Honor Triple Crown Champion. And and by what what he means by that is he's going to be the first person to ever hold the world title, the peer title, and the tag titles. Uh, Joe tells us that some people said that the Ring of Honor World Hell didn't mean much when he won it, but he says it meant the world when he let. By the time he let it go, uh, Joe says the same thing could be said for the peer and tag titles when he gets his hands on them. But tonight, those plans are on hold as he takes care of Mick Foley, tearing through his mystery opponent and finding out who was the person that handed Mick the chair he used to attack Joe at the last show. Tonight, Joe says Mick will realize why he'll never step in the ring with Joe. Joe then transitions to saying that tonight is also a time to celebrate because Jay Lethal gets a crack at the pure title. Uh, Joe tells Jay to, rem- to just remember that after he wins the pure title tonight, he's got to deal with Joe next. The two slap hands, and then Jay turns to the camera, Matt, and gives, I know a line you like, the immortal line. Matt, do you want to give it? Oh, man, you put me on the spot as an actor here. Because, you know, Jay really... You know, he, he was act, he was like he was in Romeo and Juliet when he was given this line. Like, that's how, <laughs> that's how much he, he acted this line. But he, he said, what, he said, first of all, he said, thanks, Joe. What better way to show my appreciation? Because tonight is the night I've been waiting for. Now, <laughs> if we had done this as a video podcast, I could flex my muscle and just kind of st- st- go into freeze frame mode for a few seconds because that's what Jay Lethal did. Um, yeah, this is this is one of the great moments in ROH promo history. Um, Jay Lethal would become a good promo. I did. N- <laughs> I would not have thought it was possible at this point, but he did become a good promo. Actually, it didn't even take that long. He just had to find his inner machismo, and he uh, he became a good promo, and he, he still is. So hey, good for Jay Lethal. But man, not good, <laughs> not good, yeah. but also great. The, the, Jay is kind of lucky that he did this in 2004, not 2020, because this is definitely the kind of thing that would have became like a meme for years in the age of social media. Because uh, you definitely got like joked around a bit and referenced on the message boards back then, just that one brief one line. But you know, if we had the days where things can be easily like gift and shared on Twitter and you know used in a variety of different circumstances, like. Uh, this probably would have haunted Jay a lot more than it actually did. And actually, but, when ROH made a roster video later that year where they showed all the different like stars of ROH, this was the clip they used for Jay Lethal. So I think people <laughs> in the company like definitely 
got a kick out of this too. And I'm sure Jay Lethal did as well. So I don't think he'd be offended by us making fun of it. But I also don't know him. Maybe he would be. Maybe he's real mad about it. Um, (laughs) Just seething. Yeah. But um, I did like that Joe finally got a chance to cut a post-title loss promo with like a mission statement. It is kind of funny that he wants to win the pure title, which he thought was like the most biggest joke of a title in the world um, for like the past year. Yeah, and it's funny, Matt, you mentioned that our last episode kind of felt like a season premiere for us, like it always does when we start covering a new year of Ring of Honor. You know, we just launched 2005. And I found that in a few ways, this show kind of felt like the season premiere for Ring of Honor, even though technically it was the second show of the year. Even like just stuff like that where, you know, last show, Jay, I mean, Joe had his confrontation with Foley and he wrestled Nigel McGuinness. But this is the show where he actually kind of lays out like – this is my goal now that I'm not world champion anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to win these other two titles. And another way this show felt kind of like the season premiere is actually the very next segment, which is um, at this point we cut to the ring as the whole ring of honor roster makes its way down to the ring in front of the fans to start the show. Uh, Bobby Cruz welcomes the crowd and says ring of honors beginning their, their two week third anniversary. He then, he then hands the mic to CM Punk who gets his usual New Jersey mix of booze and cheers. Even when Punk is a baby face in New Jersey, half the crowd hates him. Um, Punk repeats his points from his backstage promo about 2004 ring of honor featuring the promotions, highest highs and lowest lows. Punk then puts over a bunch of members of the roster and their 2004 highlights and then says that, Everyone in Ring of Honor wouldn't be there without the fans. So the reason that they're all out there in the ring right now is to start 2005 out right by returning the favor and giving the fans a standing ovation after the fans have given them so many, So, and which the, the roster then does. And then Punk ends by saying 2005 will top 2004. So this is another way that kind of felt, even though this was the second show of the year, this kind of feels like the kickoff, even though I guess they're doing it because it's technically the third anniversary. It does kind of feel like the start of something new, at least to me it did. Yeah, I um I mean, yeah, I mean it it is technically the beginning of their third year or their fourth year I should say. Yeah. So, um so I guess for them it, it kind of is the, the the new year as opposed to the January show. Um yeah, it was a that was a nice moment though. I um Punk kind of gave the same promo that he gave in backstage um before the standing O part. You know, the highest of highs, the lowest yeah. of lows. But um I did like Fast Eddie getting in the ring and saying, "I'm on the show, baby." <laughs> And he's been on like a few shows. Like I love this idea that he's like still really enthused, like just the novelty of being on the main card. Well, he also just like well, he wasn't booked on the show, but he got actually to to hang out and be on camera. So I think that's what he was excited about. How would he even know he's on the show? Because in case you didn't know, Matt, he's legally blind. That's right. He might not. He probably doesn't even know that he's in New Jersey. Which, he, did, he didn't think it was a Ring of Honor show. Someone told him he was at WrestleMania. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and hey, who's to tell him it's not the case? He can't see calendars. <laughs> Every day is an adventure when you're fast, Eddie. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting because it's a little sign that, like, this. it's still kind of it, – it's always just like a novelty to me that this is probably the era of Ring of Honor – I mean, of CM Punk's maybe his entire career where he was, like, the most – pure ass babyface babyface like even getting to be kind of the voice of the company here and speaking for everybody like not joe not not and you know it, it's punk that's giving the very rah-rah like thank you guys thank you for everything and yeah not much even, not, not not much of a wise ass at all 
Yeah, and usually, you know, usually even when Punk is a babyface in wrestling, there's a, quite a bit of snark and edge to him. And this is a again, if you ever want, if you're ever someone that want to know, like, what would Punk look like if he's just playing it like very straight babyface? Like some of these shows around this time, from the last couple months to now at least, is, is probably as as pure a babyface as you're ever going to see CM Punk act like. But um, and honestly, it's not it's not the most interesting time for him. I'll be honest. Like, I don't mean yeah, to it, criticize, but like, I don't think it works that well for him. Yeah, you kind of see why Punk didn't normally play a character this way. But I don't think it's terrible, but yeah. No, there, no, there no. He's still, a he's, he still has a lot of charisma. He's just not – it's not his best character work. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to the opening match on the main card. Steve Crino defeated Roderick Strong via pinfall in 11 minutes, 12 seconds after he hits a lariat. Before the match, Crino came out with his students and his personal ring announcer. On commentary, Gabe tells us that Crino wasn't scheduled to be the opener tonight. Jay Lethal actually was, but Crino is fired up. Um, he throws his shirt into the crowd. He grabs the mic. He says there'll be no personal ring introduction tonight. He says he doesn't care about the rules. He doesn't care about the anniversary. He just needs a little revenge. He says he's one knee down, he's one hand down, but he's going to kick Roderick Strong's ass, and he tells him to get his green ass out here. Uh, Strong runs to the ring, and the fight is on. Uh, Matt, what would you think about that fight, and uh, I guess the match that kind of developed from it? Yeah, well, first of all, um, I love Carino's obnoxious entrances. Like, even when he's, like, on his way out, like, all, like, I'm not even going to waste time with this intro, he still has, like, a 10-minute pre-entrance, like, intro where, like, the music changes a bunch of times. And he finally comes out, like, and then he's like, yeah, we're not going to wait. We're going to get this going. So I, I just, I love that um, aspect. And um, yeah, as far as the match, um, I think um, I'd have to think a little bit more. But this feels to me like it, it had to be Carino's best non-homicide match in Ring of Honor um, that we've seen. Uh, it's a good match. Like, it's um, strong, just like he, we saw in the last show. He's starting to show more personality. You know, he's like spitting at uh, Carino's uh, corner guys and, you know, John with the crowd. Um, and he's really good here, um, Strong is. He's like at certain points, like, and I, I know it's probably not true, but it feels like almost Strong is being the ring general, even though he's in the ring with, uh, a, you know, a much more veteran wrestler than him. Mm-hmm. But, um, but like I, I like the way that he you know he he's he's really targeting the knee pretty hard. Does a lot of interesting stuff with it. You know, figure four, um, you know, where and then he gets kicked into the chair. Meanwhile, Carino is just much more serious here than he has been in recent shows that we've seen, and I think it works a lot better for him than um, than you know the the you know kind of a cheeky version of Steve Carino that we've seen on recent shows. I, I don't know if that was apparent to you. Oh but, yeah. Yeah, and, and like you know, he's um, you know he's doing more like fighting spirit esque stuff. You know, he's they're doing their forearm duels in the middle, hitting his hitting a standing in Zagiri. He doesn't he does an ace crusher for a near fall, and and Gabe points out that's homicide's move. You know, showing that that sort of thing is still going on. He actually does uh, a really intense like running STO with his casted hand, which the crowd actually gives a holy shit chant to because it was such like an intense STO. And usually Carino's not the guy that does moves that get holy shit chants typically, um, you know, when he's not in like a barbed wire match at least. Um, um, but, um, you know, they do some stuff with the chair. Um, there's, there's a point where a Strong hits a big backbreaker and then like the sick kick – but Regal distracts the ref and Carino's students attack Strong and that allows Carino to hit the Northern Lights bomb and Strong kicks out. But like 
this was a no rules match, and I don't understand why they felt the need to distract the ref. Like, they're like little logic things like that. Like, they forget the rules of the match that they're in. It seems like they, if they're going to, um, if they're going to interfere, they can probably just interfere with impunity, right? If there's no rules. Yeah. Um, but I guess you could argue that, um, you know, the ref could just throw them out. That, that, that's one thing that he could do. But anyway, um, you know, uh, when, um, when, uh, Carino, uh, hits his lariat and gets the win, I, I, I thought, I thought it was a good match. I thought, like, there was, there was some oddly timed, like, fighting spirit, no selling that I didn't totally think fit with an opening match. But I really thought it was a good time. I thought just Carino was, was good. I thought Strong was very good. And I thought it was a good, intense opener that's helping, uh, Strong get over as his own man. Um, yeah, I'm. I give it a thumbs up. This was a good opener. Uh, um, I, uh, I I liked it maybe just a slight bit less than you, but I, I actually was surprised that I, it overachieved for me too, especially knowing that you know that hand injury was legit. And I think you the, one of the main points about this match, and you touched on, you did a great job pointing it out, which is. Um, I think kind of like the C- CM Punk we just talked about playing different. This is a role Steve Carino is playing this match that we I don't think we've ever seen him play in Ring of Honor up to this point, which is kind of like the angry, sympathetic babyface. Like he comes out fire, you know, especially even on recent shows. We, we've seen him doing with the tag matches with Punk, like a lot of comedy and not really taking things seriously. And this match, you know, it's a very intense brawl right to start. And then like a very, you know, high action, hard hitting match where, you know, Steve Creel isn't playing around. He's actually like, you know, the, in the middle of the match, it, it's, um, strong working over Creel's knee. So, you know, um, Creel's actually in the position of being the sympathetic baby face in ring of Iron, which again, I don't know if he's ever really been that up to this point and probably not a role. He plays that much at this point in his career in general. Um, and it, it, at first it felt like maybe the crowd wasn't, like eh, we're not used to f- feeling this way about Creo, but by the midpoint of the match, I felt like they were behind him, and that brings me to kind of like one or two, one of my two kind of little quibbles with this match, which is not what the work in the match, but the thing you mentioned, which was the interference, and you mentioned Regal, which for people that maybe don't have the context, it's uh. Regal was the last name of uh, Steve Carino's replacement ring announce, personal ring outs, announcer after Bobby Cruz. It's not William Regal was not there. Just in case anyone like doesn't have that context, wondering Regal. Yeah, but, sorry, uh, sorry about that. By the way, no, he, no, yeah, he was a replacement ring announcer, but he was not a replacement level ring announcer. It's good stuff <laughs> from that guy. <laughs> no, and I, I don't think you did anything wrong. I just, I was, just, I'm always trying to. I, try to, I always have to think. You know, does everyone that uh, listens to the show? like watch every show because I actually, we got a, a, um, uh, I got a tweet the other day, Matt, from someone that's watching the shows for the first time. And they're uh, all the ring of honor shows. And they're listening to each of our episodes after they watch the show. And they were like, they didn't want us to change it, but they were like, Oh, kind of like a minor thing. Like I actually like got spoiled on ring of honor because of your podcast. I'm like, that is something I never thought would happen that, that we would be like, spoiling 16 17 year old wrestling shows for somebody but apparently we uh that's something we have the power to do matt yes and when i apologize for that and <laughs> and and i know that from now on i think we're gonna try to do these shows without actually saying what happened um no i'm just kidding um <laughs> no no but no no but sir no but sir no sir i'm not no, nothing no shade at all at that person i uh i think i re- it's really amazing that people actually listen to us at all and it's very it's always an honor to hear from a listener in of any stripe so um thank you i guess is yeah. all i can say 
that person's been very kind. But that that's why the only reason I get kind of like I feel like I go out of my way sometimes to reference things that probably most of our listeners will go, yeah, we know what we're talking about. We watch the show. We remember the show just in case because who knows? Maybe Matt, maybe in 2050, you know, someone will be discovering Ring of Honor, you know, in the in the war torn world of the future and discovering this podcast and they'll they'll have no context. But um, anyway, flaw of the shows. Uh, I mean, flaw of the match. I felt like this match was, you know, Crino was the face and he had worked. I feel like they worked hard to get Crino to be seen as the face. And then in the middle of the match, Carino's corner, um, distracts the ref. And then it, it's such a weird moment where, um, like he's the baby face and, and, and Roderick Strong, even though he's in Generation X, Jack Evans and Austin Aries do not come to the ring with him. He's completely alone as the heel. And the babyface has an entourage that's interfering on his behalf. And it gets to this point where, um, I guess, you know, maybe you could find a way to explain it. Say, well, you know, Steve Creon's the kind of character that even when he's a face, he cheats. Or, you know, Roderick Strong sneak attacked him on the last show, so he's in his rights to do whatever it takes. But it really, it just felt weird. And, um, like, it, it gets booze from the crowd that it started cheering Carino. And then right after that, Carino hits his Northern lights bomb finisher and strong kicks out and strong gets a big baby face pop for that. So I feel like they had kind of flipped the, the, the script of what the intended story of the match was. And, um, I can probably, I probably have like a way, like a, a way to at least, um, justify that in my mind anyway. There, there, there are hoops you can jump through, but I do think you kind of have to do a little bit of like, mental gymnastics to get there. I, I just felt it kind of was going against what I felt like the desired reaction of the match was. But um, I suppose it didn't bother me that much. Um, I think it was more of a way to make, because really Roderick Strong was the guy they were planning for for the future, right? So like yeah. he was losing this match. So they wanted to keep him strong. And it's not like Generation Next were going to be heels for long. Yeah. No, no, you, you have a point there. And um, my other, my only other little thing quibble with this match was uh that you know the announcers try to hype you know that oh because carino said you know he doesn't care about rules tonight this is going to be a no rules match and like you said one they distracted the ref to do the interference and two apart from i think like one spot where a chair gets wedged between turnbuckles and a guy gets thrown into it like there is nothing in this match that you could have you couldn't have done without like in a regular match. Like it feels weird that they even kind of stress that the, Oh, I guess this is a no impromptu, like no DQ match because it was basically just a good intense regular wrestling match. So and, I as, and, was- as, and as we know, in ROH people just use chairs at random and usually nothing happens about because of it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, that was a little weird too, but for the most part, again, the work in the match w- was good. It was, I think, probably one of Carino's better non-homicide performances, and he did it with a broken hand. Although, the, well, okay, one other little thing. I don't even know if this is a negative, but this is one of those weird things that happens in wrestling where I don't know if Steve Carino had a legit knee injury or not, but obviously they worked it into a storyline on the last show where Roderick Strong attacked him and whipped his knee into the barricade during Carino's match. And so, I mean, Strong spends this match working it over, pulling off his knee brace and stuff. But it's always funny. It's one of those things that's like a weird wrestling thing where a wrestler has like a clear, legit injury, but the wrestler works over like a not clear, probably fake injury because like, you know, strong never touches the giant broken hand that has a cast on it, but works very diligently on this, uh, 
neat. But obviously, that's just one of those weird quirks of wrestling that has to happen. But yeah, um, no, that's a good that's a good point. It was something that I was thinking of that I neglected to mention. Yeah, it's it, it is weird. Like, because you know, obviously, if somebody had a worked hand injury, the guy would be like trying to rip off the cast. You know. Yeah, and instead here he he completely ignores the hand, but. Still, again, these are these are just like this should show you that this match is is fairly good when like these are like the minor things I could nitpick out. And again, it's a it's an interesting match if you were watching along every show with us because it's kind of a different side of Carino that you don't see in Ring of Honor. So after the match, uh, Steve gets on the mic and he says, six years ago he made a career out of beating up old guys, and now he guesses he is one. He says, "I'm beat up. I'm dis- I'm always disabled, but I'm smart." Uh, he said, Carino says, Strong might be part of Generation Next, but everyone here has a lot of respect for Strong, and so does Carino. Uh, Steve then offers a handshake that Roderick Strong rejects, which gets a bunch of boos and a few claps from the crowd. And so, Matt, um, do you want to guess how old Steve Carino was at the time of this promo where he calls himself a broken down old man? Oh, man. I, you know, I knew I, well, when, we were, when we were first talking about Carino and ROH, I, I looked up his age, so I'm going to give a give a quick guess of 31 <laughs> you're almost there he's 32 he's only 32 <laughs> years old uh, steve crino was co- considered like and some of the other wrestlers would sometimes joke like he was considered like an old man and like a kg veteran he's talking about how like i'm breaking down at the age of 32 man we are both older than that right now sad oh yes like, I'm, i am significantly older than that <laughs> uh, um like Roman Reigns is older than that right now, and no one's like, oh, that guy, you know, it's over. Like, Kenny Omega is 37. I mean, he's yeah. five years older than Creedle was at this point, where Creedle's like, yeah, yeah, it's winding down. Well, yeah, it, just goes, it just goes to show how young ROH's roster was at that time, too. You know, like, they had a lot of guys that were in their early 20s. Brian Danielson was still in his – he wasn't even 25 yet, right? And by, by – by, yeah, he was – I think he was only, like – 23 at this point like that's like the, the guys were so young I, i'm thinking samoa joe is probably only like two or three years older than that or you know um at that point punk i i think was probably only like 25 26 at that point at this point too like the roh top stars were just young i think um you know i, I don't know it just they had a lot of young guys so 32 was you know significantly older and more experienced than a lot of them you know when, when daniel's was in the early days of ROH when he was considered like the old veteran guy. He was also just like in his early 30s, right? Yeah, and wrestlers, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but like a lot of his the guys like Punk and Joe, his friends, in like lovingly on shoot interview stuff, would call him OMD, Old Man Daniels, when he's probably, again, in his early 30s at this point. But that was an old man in uh, early 2000s u.s indie wrestling well yeah i mean i mean i guess probably it's true for anybody like when you are in your early 20s any age that has a three in it you know in this in the tens place seems really old right i remember when i was like 23 and i was like oh my god what am i doing with my life it's over you know and it's and now i look back and i'm like what what is wrong with me but (laughs) you know i mean hopefully hopefully uh, when I'm like 50, I'll look back at my mid-30s and think the same thing about that, but probably not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, speaking for myself, I peaked at 25. So, uh, hmm. oh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> probably, I probably peaked at like 32, 30, <laughs> 31, 32 probably. So you're like Steve Carino. You, well, actually, no, because Steve Carino saying he's like washed up at 32. So yeah, yeah. You, Matt Feuerstein, better than Steve Carino. No, um, just, just later than Steve Carino. <laughs> 
So uh, next we cut to Deranged, Izzy and Lacey backstage. Deranged and Izzy keep goofing off in the background as an angry Lacey tries to get them to take things seriously. She says to, they're going to win tonight. They're going to win the big scramble cage tonight. It's just very nothing little segment, not much to say. Um, next up, in fact, something that I, I should have mentioned on the last match, for anyone that's watching this show, in the first match, that Karina Roddick Strong match, Matt mentioned the long entrance that a Crino had. Look for a fan in the aisleway that is just dancing up a storm to Crino's music. It's it's a, it's a nice little moment. And that man um, was Trevor Dame. <laughs> Never. Um. Next up, the Ring of Honor Pure Title Number One Contendership Match. Jay Lethal defeated Jimmy Ray, the score to the ring by Prince Nana, via pinfall in ten minutes fifty five seconds after he hits the Dragon Suplex. Um, when Ray gets in the ring before the match starts, someone threw a piece of trash into it. So again, not the, we're not at the toilet paper stage yet, but occasionally people are already throwing crap into the ring when Jimmy Ray wrestles. Uh, before the match, Nana gets on the mic and he does some mic work calling down the fans. He gets a loud shut the fuck up chant. Which would become Nana- one of, which would become one of his calling cards. Yeah. Um, Nana's then says that this match will have a guest at ringside, the newest member of the embassy, who is – for a second I thought it was – they announced a new member of the embassy on this show, but no, it was just him introducing John Walters, who had joined a couple shows ago. Uh, Walters has now new entrance music, and he comes out in a goofy – uh, Ghana-ish garb, I guess. I don't know if you would call this a dashiki or what. Just a, it's, not a a di- it's not a dashiki. It's a, it's a, yeah, I don't know. It's probably racist, whatever it is. It's and, something to evoke that kind of reaction. Like, oh, yeah. you know. And um, he sits at ringside. And I thought this was a really good match for its place on the card. Again, I don't think it was anything, like, crazy good. Like, it's an above average, like, low good match like you know three three and a quarter stars but i think what what's good about it is this is the kind of match i think you want on second from the bottom and it probably wouldn't work higher on the card because it has enough action and, and it's good enough to be interesting but it's not so like thrilling or action-packed that it's a difficult bar for later matches on the card to top like it's not going to burn out the crowd it tells a very a good simple story and again, that's the kind of thing that maybe later in the car, the crowd might be more burnt out, but here they're really reacting well to it. And it probably also doesn't hurt that Jay Lethal is the home, literally the hometown boy from Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, so he always gets a good reaction here at the Rexplex. But the story of this match is Lethal's mid-session gets hurt and Rave works over it. And Lethal just has his usual well-timed, fiery babyface comebacks, which is a uh, lethal strength. And it's nothing revolutionary, but... I do like there's a couple little twists that get thrown into the match from Rave. Like, he does a seated abdominal t- stretch on um, Lethal, but he ties Lethal's legs up while, while it's happening, and then he turns that into a pin, which I thought was cool. There's also a cool late-match spot where Lethal's running the ropes, and he dives through Rave's legs, and then Rave does, like, this no-look kick behind him to hit Lethal without even turning around to face him, which I thought was a neat little thing you don't see every day in these matches. And... um yeah, I, I enjoyed the match. The only flaw I had with this match was probably the the whole Jay Lethal midsection injury. It starts with a spot where uh, Rave is whipping Lethal, I think, into the turnbuckle, and Lethal kind of like slides under the turnbuckle, so he hits the uh, the post with his ribs, and that's a really hard spot to pull off. And I feel like he kind of ended up 
it, it's so difficult to do. He kind of slid into the uh, the turnbuckle so slow because it just takes so much more. It breaks up so much momentum to kind of drop that low and to go that far. That it was kind of like eh, that didn't look so good. And that's kind of the spot that starts the injury. But overall, um, I, I enjoy I enjoyed this match. So. Um, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would probably give the match about the same rating as you, and I, but I think I felt more enthusiastic about it. Like it just, it was a really, it was just like they did a really good job of what they were trying to do. Like I don't really have anything negative to say about it. It was like it was, it was, it was worked to be a good three and a quarter star match, and that's what it was. Like you said, second match on the card, style deal, and the crowd, you know, the crowd really behind Lethal because he's the hometown boy, like you said, and he. um and um, the uh, the I, I was thinking about Walters when he was dressed up in that wacky outfit. And it was like, you know, you kind of wonder like maybe it would have been better if Walters stay in the embassy was a little bit longer because it seems like it could have been fun. Like he seemed like he yeah. was having fun uh, dressed like that. And um, Nolte goes that Acid is no longer the worst dressed wrestler in ROH, and Gabe's like. That might be because he quit, and Nolte, but but Nolte like like I and you could tell that Gabe is like, why are we talking about Trinacid? But Nolte keeps going. He's like, he's like, I think it's safe for Trinacid to come back, and Gabe is probably just like loving that. Like why? Like I don't understand why you would do this. Like like I think there are a few moments on this show, honestly, where you could sort of feel Gabe being like, all right, I'm probably kind of had enough of this whole Mark Nolte thing. Um, but maybe I'm just projecting. I don't know. No, uh, Matt, I have a note later on. I don't know which match, but we'll get to it. Where I literally write like, uh, there's a moment where I think you can tell that Gabe is like audibly annoyed with Mark Nolte. That isn't this one. This is a completely different one you caught. So I, I think the theory is correct, Matt. Yeah. Well, there's there's another part where um, Gabe says that Nana is looking for Rave to soften up Lethal for Walters rather than win, and Nolte says that Rave might be Walter's policeman, who's the guy who softens up challengers for the champion. And I sort of was thinking, like, Rave would be an interesting choice for the policeman role. I don't – when I look at Jimmy Rave, I'm not like, oh, yeah, he's the heavy in the group. You know? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, if you look at the guys, you'd, you'd flip it. You would think Walters would be the, the, the heavy setting up guys for, like, the pretty boy Jimmy Rave. I think Nolte just wanted any opportunity to go back to, to talk about some old wrestling trope, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, but I thought the match was good. You know, I thought Lethal was good, fiery baby face. I liked that Gabe correctly called the running knee this time. I thought that was like the biggest moment of the night, honestly. Um, no, 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 no incorrect shining wizard call at all. Yeah. Um, I don't but, know how it happened, but if so, somehow it took, it took like over a year, yes. but Gabe finally, and one, uh, uh, uh attempt from CM Punk that didn't seem to take but to correct him but it worked this time almost two years I think oh my god but um but yeah so but like I thought you know it was just it was just just a um good like straight ahead ending right Rave went for his finisher Lethal escaped hit his finisher won the match I really enjoyed it and like you said just it was just focused to the point well worked good selling from Lethal but not belabored you know tonight was the night he was waiting for so it worked it worked out (laughs) I guess the other thing we should mention, and I think we've talked about this before, like one interesting thing about the embassy is it feels like almost every show they were like tweaking or adding a new element to the uh, the the whole act as a whole. And here, obviously, you get the the Walters thing, which I agree with you. Like, I think Walters is kind of like the fish out of water guy, like the guy who's like like Ray fits into the embassy as a glove. Like he just looks the kind of the pretty boy pampered like crown jewel of the embassy. But Walter's the fun is this idea of you taking this very 
stern, serious guy and, and making him like the most ridiculous aspects that this gimmick can, can offer the stable. And yeah, I would have liked to see more of that too. But the thing they tweaked for this show is uh, the outcast killers now come out in dress shirts and pants instead of their wrestling gear when they do a spray the aerosol. So again, just the, Interesting, like little stuff like that. Every show, you can tell that someone's thinking about, like, we could try this, we could do this. Where a lot of times something comes out and it's kind of fully formed the first or second show, and people just go, This is what we're going to do, this is what works. And it feels like every show almost the embassy's doing something just a little bit different. But, um, after the match, the crowd chants for lethal as the announcers try to sell this as the biggest win of Jay's career, which. Uh, maybe I, I'm not sure. Maybe in maybe in Ring of Honor. Um, Nana throws a tantrum. He tears off his jacket. And he gets on the mic to call this match a travesty. As the Outcast Killers um, help Rave to the back, Nana, while he's ranting and walking around the ring, slips on a streamer. He he doesn't completely fall on his ass, but he definitely stumbles and he gets a few you fucked up chants. Nana then says he's spoken to his lawyers and John Walters can have his title defense with Lethal any time he wants tonight. So Nana asks Walters, do you want the match now or do you want it later? Uh, Walters writes, uh, I mean, says some foreign words, which I wrote my notes presumably in Ghanese. But as soon as I wrote that, I said, Trevor, what the hell are you doing? And I looked it up on Wikipedia. Matt, Ghana's official language is English. <laughs> anyway. Well, um, well, also, also, man, I was going to mention this. Gabe at one point said, oh, Walter shouldn't have said that he, he used the African word for now. And it's like, um, first of all, African is not a language. Um, <laughs> Afrikaans is, I, I don't know if, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I don't think that's spoken in Ghana either, or at least not primarily. Yeah. Either way, whatever he said, the point is he, he's saying that means now and we get the match. But um, and that match is the Ring of Honor peer title match. John Walters defeated Jay Lethal via pinfall in 12 minutes, 55 seconds after he hit three straight lung blowers. And then in kind of a, in a neat little spot, because Lethal had exhausted his rope breaks, um, Walters drags um, Lethal into the corner after the three lung blowers and holds onto the ropes, which he legally now can do as he does the pin. Um, Matt, so this match obviously kind of basically bleeds in from – not bleeds into the last one. The other one bleeds into this one, but uh, kind of an extension of the same story. What did you think about this match? Uh, it didn't quite – hit me uh, as as well as the first one did um you know the rave one i i thought they could have given lethal a few more convincing near falls uh, and there was some sloppiness and weakness like in lethal's offense where i and i couldn't always tell if he was selling if it was selling or not but like i thought it told a pretty good story um you know where lethal was you know kind of the the underdog you know um there was a spot where um um, Walters goes for a backdrop where Lethal doesn't get any real elevation. Um, like it was like a like a bad botched backdrop, but the crowd you know didn't give him and didn't excuse me didn't give them any grief for it. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought Walters he took to the heel act pretty decently, considering I guess this was his first match as a heel in ROH. Like he was being being pretty ruthless, pretty dominant. He was trying personality wise, but you know he still doesn't didn't have a ton of personality at this point. Um, but he was making an effort to work as a heel, and I appreciated that. Um, um, Gabe actually had to remind us that this was a, a pure title match with the rope break rules, and I have to admit that when I first started watching the match, I completely forgot about that. Like it was good that he reminded us because I was that I wouldn't <laughs> I would not have thought of it. But um, you know, so they do the they do the rope break stuff pretty fast. Walters locks on the sharpshooter to get Lethal to use his first rope break. Um, 
lethal would make his comebacks, but they were very chop heavy. But they would they definitely had less force behind them than they did against Rave. So I was saying either Lethal is tired or he was just doing a good job of selling. I guess ultimately it doesn't matter because it made sense that he would have weaker chops. So I guess it's fine either way. Um, he did some cool moves. Like he did this cool like leg, leg grapevine while lifting Walters into a crucifix position with his legs. Um, and that leads to Walters using his first rope break. Uh, then Lethal misses the diving headbutt and Walters locks on the Boston Crab. Um but Lethal like kind of contorts his body so Walters can't get it on, and he rolls out and turns it into a sharpshooter of his own, and that gets Walters to use a second rope break. Then Walters hits a power bomb into another sharpshooter, and Lethal runs right for the ropes and uses his second rope break. So many sharpshooters for rope breaks in this match. It's like I would love to see a match where it just the only move done is a sharpshooter, and they just reverse <laughs> sharpshooters for the whole match until somebody wins. Um, someone's gonna do that now. Um, but- you know who would have probably done that if you had suggested is Brian Danielson because didn't yes. he and Claudio in PWG have that match where it was like a headlock for almost the entire match? Like, yes. Brian Danielson is the kind of guy where if you kind of just did that as a dare, he would have totally done that. And probably had a good match. Um, yeah. Um, so um, Walters does like a, a camel clutch style chin lock and this, this time Lethal actually escapes but not a trips Lethal. And then Lethal, of course, ducks a, uh, a clothesline and does a tope onto Santiago and Nana. And then he jumps back in the ring, hits a big clothesline for two. Um, he goes onto the top. He goes. He goes for a tope onto Walters, but Walters actually catches him and throws him ribs first into the barricade, which I thought was really impressive by Walters. Like he's not typically like uh, the, considered like a power wrestler. And that was a pretty impressive, like, catch-and-throw kind of move. And it worked out really well because he was going over – he was working on the ribs anyway. So I thought that was that was probably the spot of the match for me. Um, and he continues to work on the ribs, body scissors, which uh, which leads to the third rope break. Um, the lethal hits a sudden power bomb. They're both down. Um, lethal comes back with some weak-looking moves, I th- I thought. But he does hit a, a jumping DDT and gets two for that. He actually hits a Macho Man-style flying elbow. So that must be the first appearance of Black Machismo. I was going to say, have we seen the birth of Black Do we, Matt, have we discovered the birth of Black Machismo? I think so. I think that was he, it. Not only does he hit the flying elbow, it's a very – you can tell even here he's very inspired by Randy Savage. It is a very – the way he does it, a very Savage-style flying elbow. Right. I, I definitely, and I mean, you could you could tell it was. Um, so Lethal goes for the dragon suplex, but Walters reverses, hits three necktie style lung blowers, and uses the ropes for leverage to pin Lethal, which is legal because Lethal used all his rope breaks. Which, as I've said before, doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't think that should be part of the rules, but it is. Um, so yeah, I thought it told a pretty good story, um, but mm, maybe maybe three stars is what I'd give it. Maybe yeah, I'd say about that. This is another match where I probably agree with like your rating, but just like you were a little more enthusiastic about a match you agreed with me with, I feel the same about like I think this was the worst of the three matches on the show so far. But I maybe am a, liked it a slight bit more. Like I was maybe a bit more forgiving of like like some of the sloppiness or the or the weak lethal offense. In, in a way, this match was kind of like what we've seen a lot from pure title matches, which is. The body of the match is just trading submissions and um, using up the rope breaks. And then usually in the last few minutes, they're kind of like, oh, shit, we should just make this more like a regular modern indie match and do back and forth 
high impact moves and near falls and stuff. But, um, and, and usually when I see matches like that, I'm kind of like, eh, that's, that's fine. But I think what helped this match is it had that built in story from the previous match. So, you know, when, Le- when uh, Walters does submissions, it's, he's not just doing random submissions. It's, you know, he's working over Lethal's, um, midsection, his injured ribs, and the crowd's really behind Lethal because it's his hometown. It's his chance to become a champion. And so, even though this match kind of told a story we've seen a lot in the last year in Ring of Honor, it kind of had some supporting elements that kind of helped make that story more engaging this time, I would say. I agree with you that um, Walter's catching Lethal on the on the tope and then tope and then putting him ribs first on the barricade was, was definitely like the wow. Like that's a really cool standout spot of the match. Um I, and I agree about the Walters performance where he, he's not night and day better here, but I always think my favorite John's Walters performances are when he shows a little bit of a mean streak or a lot of a mean streak. And he does just a tiny bit of it here, like at the start of the match where Lethal is still selling being hurt. He shakes his hand while he's still like writhing in pain, and then he just immediately puts the boots to him. And every time Walters does stuff like that, I always am like – I wish he would do just so much more of it because I think that's usually where he really shines. And he, a lot of times he'll just show you like a little glimmer of being like snarky to the crowd or just being kind of a dick in the ring. And I feel like he's actually like way better when he, when he does stuff like that. Um, I'm just looking over my stuff. You touched on most things. I did think maybe this is the point where we should talk about, I thought, um, this was the show, Matt. I think we talked about it a little bit on the last show with It All Begins, but this was the show where it really came through. And I think from talking to you in the past, you agree with me. Um, Mark Nolte has clearly regressed as a commentator by this point. Like, he started out fine, and he is actively a detriment to the shows now. Like, for some reason, in the last two or three shows, but I especially noticed on this show, I don't know if you did, he is trying to sell so many moments where he raises his voice and gets really excited, but it's so fake sincere. Instead of doing it like once a show, it seems like he's now doing it in like once in like every other match. And he's trying he's to he's just, trying to be Jim Ross, and I and it just doesn't suit him at all. And I don't know if someone told him he needed to do that, or if he just decided that on his own, or he was reading online criticism. But like that was not the thing. Mark, for all Mark Nolte's flaws were, that was not the thing he was missing. And in fact, it, it turns him from a tolerable middle of the road announcer to someone that's kind of actively annoying and, and at points makes me, takes me kind of out of matches for a second. Um, I will say though, by despite all of that, and despite, I feel like this was probably the worst performance of his entire ring of honor career to this point. I do think this match was a high point for him where he clearly, he had done some, st- done some studying or at least had someone give him some numbers because he had all these facts like, oh, um, Walters is on a seven match win singles win streak, which no one else in Ring of Honor has at this moment. And talking about, oh, like this is the first time ever in a pure title match that Walters used his second rope break before his opponent. And even I thought his best moment was, um, when uh, Lethal goes to the top rope and hits the, uh, um, he goes for a flying move, and it's a flying move that actually misses at a different point in the match. And he he had earlier gone to the top rope and hit a move in the rave match. And Nolte actually goes, you know, you know what the difference is? He tells Gabe is this is his second match, so he's tired, and um, and you know, so he climbed the ropes, um. Uh, slower and that's why he um, missed the move this time and it goes back to your point about you saying you know i don't know if if lethal was selling you know being 
injured more in the second match or he was just legit tired. But like that's the points where announcing can actually help a match where you take something that's apparent to us, the fans, and you turn it into a story that makes sense rather than fighting against the match. You, you know, that's an example of how, you know, you can you can enhance the match where who knows if lethal meant that to be part of the story. But Nalty's explanation makes sense. And so you kind of just accept like, oh, that's a cool little Twi- little moment to take note of but um so in further the quality of the match we got that there's a couple things i want to talk about about the booking and um i guess the first one would just be matt in a way to me this kind of felt like too soon for uh jay lethal to win the win win a title in ring of honor especially because um you know, it wasn't too many shows ago we were talking about how jay lethal was getting like almost no offense in some of his matches but like I kind of got the impression watching this match that maybe this was the night to put the title on him. Like, do you think that this would have been a good night? Like, it felt like the crowd was very behind him. It's his hometown crowd. You had this whole built-in story of him overcoming the odds by having to wrestle two matches in a row. And instead, they kind of drag it out for a little—they try and get a little more juice out of this. Do you do you think this would have been the time in hindsight? I think I'm going to have to wait and see the match where he actually wins it to be able to say for sure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like if that match is a little bit flat— I would say that maybe this would have been the night, but um, I don't know. This is a very you know Paul Heyman thing to do, where it's like you 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 make the you know you you build the crowd up to really want it and don't give it to them, and that makes them want it more because this is the first match where he's really even had the opportunity, right? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, tonight was the night. <laughs> Never mind. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, just keep doing that. Yes. Just do ten more of those here. <laughs> okay. Um, um, no, but, legitimately. Thank you. Um, but no, I, I, um, you know, so I, I, I could see both sides, but like if, if it turns out that when he finally wins it, it's a good moment, then I think that this was probably the right thing to do. Cause it's not like anybody was saying, okay, now is the time we got, it's not like with Goldberg in WWE in 2003, where it was, he had this, they had this hell in a cell match and they just suck the wind out of everybody by um by having triple h beat him and then they finally had a singles match on the next show where the crowd didn't care nearly as much yeah like i don't think this is quite that so i I could see i could see them holding off um but i guess you know we'll see what happens at the show where he wins it and and the other thing i didn't really love about the booking is they really try especially well, mostly entirely on commentary to get heat for Walters with the idea of, oh, you know, Walters is taking the easy way out. He's getting such an unfair advantage because he's not letting lethal rest up. But to me, it felt kind of weird because like the stipulation for this match was Jay Lethal and Jimmy Rave had to wrestle. And then whoever won that match got a pure title match later in the night against John Walters, who didn't have to wrestle before his title defense tonight. So it's like, Yes, it's true that by Walters insisting on the match being held immediately, he has an unfair advantage. But to me, he would have had an unfair advantage, like, even if Ring of Honor did exactly what, you know, the promoters intended, which would have been lethal wrestles a match, gets like an hour and a half to rest, and then has to wrestle a fresh guy an hour and a half later. Like, and to me, that kind of dulled, like, when they really gave a nulty argument, like, you know, cheap way out, so unfair, it's like, well... He always had an advantage on this show, no matter what the way Ring of Honor booked it. Well, don't forget, this is exactly what they did with Paul London and Xavier at the uh, first anniversary show, where they were like, oh, they're supposed to wrestle later. Oh, no, they're wrestling now. So it's 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 uh, in ROH uh, canon already that this is a thing that they do for outrage. 
Yeah, it, it, it's a uh, yeah. I completely forgot about that. You're right. That is like like a little repeated uh, trope there. That, that's interesting. Um, we go backstage where Allison Danger, no longer in the evening gown of recent shows, but instead standard street clothes. Although she will be back in the evening gown later, she leaves the bathroom that Homicide and Julia smokes her in. I think she flashes a smile to the camera. I think she might wipe her mouth subtly, so maybe ooh, oral. Keep that. Oh, I, that, making... I didn't even pick up on that, man. Roh, what are you doing? If you're making a through the year soundboard, you have permission to use me saying "ooh" or as a, as a drop. But um, well, I'm glad it wasn't me. <laughs> exactly. Um, Smokes and Homicide are seemingly discussing how to cut open a cigar for a blunt. At least that's what uh, kind of what I got from the conversation in progress. Uh, Gabe tells him from behind the camera he needs a promo from them. Homicide gives a very quick, very insubstantial promo where he basically just calls Brian Danielson Opie and says he's going to knock him out tonight in a Tate Fist match. I just wrote in my notes, Matt, this wasn't much. Um, do you have yeah. any, any any impressions about this promo? No, just calling Brian Danielson Opie. I, I, I like that. Um, he is kind of Ron Howard-esque, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, I like just imagining um, Homicide being a big Andy Griffith show fan, like watching reruns on TBS. You know, he, you know, we know Homicide likes the classic wrestling, but we didn't know he stuck around on TBS to watch those old episodes. That's right. I think it would be funny if he just kept calling him different, like, Ron Howard names. Like, on the next show, he calls him Richie Cunningham. <laughs> just like, you the director of Apollo 13. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, go go make Splash again. <laughs> So, and that brings us to uh, two new guys making a splash in Ring of Honor, so to speak. Wah, wah. It is Billy Ken Kid defeating Ebison via pinfall in 7 minutes, 27, 26 seconds after he hits a 450 splash. So, these two guys are from a indie in Japan, Osaka Pro. Um, Ebison was is a big, kind of chubby, masked comedy wrestler. He he wrestles still to this day as Kikutaro. He had to change his name, but he basically is... Same kind of comedy wrestler wearing a mask. He's actually lives in America now, I believe, and, and kind of does the indies here. And um, at this point, you know, he was a bit of a cult figure where I had heard of him. And, you know, I think he had done some stuff, I think, before this, but possibly after in PWG. And he was you know, kind of known as, you know, nowadays there's a ton of comedy wrestlers on the indies. But at this time, he was kind of like the comedy wrestler that would occasionally show up here and um this match actually was surprisingly way less comedy than you might think for um an Ebison match um I think he's a, Ebison is a guy where if you've ever watched him, I think his humor plays best in small indie shows with like small crowds because I find a lot of his humor comes from his vocal performance. Like he will talk a lot during his matches and really sell these comical, like just literally saying like, ow, like ways. And in a crowd that's kind of lively of 1200 people, I feel like some of that gets lost. Although he still did some of that here. Um, he was surprisingly over for, you know, in, in this match where you don't really know, you know how over is he going to be? How many people did they uh, do him? Like uh, we had that live report from do or die where Mike Johnson said, you can tell how savvy this crowd is by the fact that they treated El Generico as a star in his debut. Well, I would say, I don't know if they treated Ebison as like a major star, but clearly a bunch of those fans were into him and were probably aware of him right from his entrance. And um, yeah, this match was was much more serious than you think. There's a little bit of comedy from Ebison. He does like the world's longest throat slash, but they played it pretty straight. And it's a pretty decent, decent kind of shortish match just based around doing neat moves. Uh, Billy Ken Kit in particular looked here like a guy who could do some really cool stuff, but could 
just barely pull it off. Like he's one of those guys where, oh, that's a neat move, but it looks like he, he took everything in him to hit it properly. Uh, he has some pretty good cocky charisma. Ebison, for his part, did some neat stuff too. Like he did like a sit out attitude adjustment. And yes, because it's a mid 2000s indie match, he did a shining wizard complete with Muda pose afterwards. And there were some sloppy moments like Ebison did a handspring off the ropes that looked very. Ebisonish, I would say, but overall, I would say slightly above average, and it was neat to see the crowd really liked Ebison. So, uh, Matt, before I hand it to you, I will, I will say this is the match where um this is the moment I wrote down as where I noticed that Gabe really I felt was getting annoyed with Mark Nolte. Gabe goes, uh, I mean Nolte goes out of out of nowhere. He goes, I think I know who Ebison is under the mask, and Gabe's like who, and Nolte says Steve Kern, and Gabe just gives a very dismissive like. Okay, yeah. and he just moves on. Like, and I wrote yeah. my notes at this point. Gabe is over Mark Nolte. Yeah, um, I wrote that down too. I because I mean, I can't, like what would like I, like Gabe would probably be like, I don't like well, who who could possibly care about that? <laughs> like, like what? Like what? What? Why would you mention Steve Kern right now? At another point, Nolte calls Ebison one of the most popular figures in Japanese wrestling, and Gabe immediately responds by calling him a cult figure, which is completely contradicting Mark while also being true, because I can tell you Osaka Pro was not a large promotion at any time, and so saying that he was one of the most popular figures in Japanese wrestling, uh, like, Nolte at this point, I think, was just throwing shit against the wall at this point in his run. But Matt, what did you think about this whole thing? Yeah, I, I probably liked it a little bit less than you, um... This is also the match where Gabe says this is this match was a late addition to the card because quite frankly the card wasn't long enough. And Nolte <laughs> Nolte enjoyed that actually. This is the opposite of Nolte's comment with to Gabe. Nolte actually enjoyed what Gabe said. Um <laughs> but um yeah, I, I think I just expect it's just not what I expected from the match. Um so I maybe that hurt my enjoyment of it. But you're right, it wasn't bad. I mean the work was fine. Um but yeah, I mean I just expected more comedy. They did you know, they did the throw slash um, which obviously got a big um, got a big uh, Ebison chant. Um, Ebison did the flare strut and a pretty bad woo. <laughs> um, uh, as far as the match, you know, you know, super kick, fireman's carries, um, air raid crash uh, got a got a near fall. Um, Billy Ken kick hit a four fifty uh, to get the win, like you said, which I I did not see coming. I'd say the crowd liked it fine, so I can't really criticize it, but it wasn't what I was looking for in the match, so I didn't really love it that much. Also, maybe a, a sign of um, – I know in a shoot interview, uh, um, the one we've covered on other shows that with uh, CM Punk and Samoa Joe, they talked about like policing the locker room to make sure like everyone was aware not to do someone else's finisher. Jimmy Ray Clearly- should have done it. He's the policeman. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Billy Ken Kid clearly did not get the message because he finished the match doing the 450, which is Austin Aries' finisher. But um, yeah, uh, a couple fans tried to start a match of the year chant after the match, so a couple people really liked it. But I, I feel like overall the crowd enjoyed it. They and um, that but- when Amazon was coming out, though, I will say there was one extremely disrespectful fan who yelled, "Holy shit, you look stupid!" And I did not appreciate that that is not nice yeah that that that's a dick move and um uh, 
This is all, I should also note that during this match, I noticed Gabe was really putting over ref Mike Keener, who I think this was his return to Ring of Honor, and I guess he was replacing uh, ref Sean Hansen, who we talked about a few shows ago, why he was going to be on his way out of Ring of Honor, and he left with some bad feelings. And so I guess Mike Keener was here to uh, fill in fill in the void and Gabe goes out of his way at a couple points to really put over Mike Keener, how great it is to have him back. So next we get a clip of AJ Styles and Samoa Joe wrestling from war of the wire as Gabe does a very loud yelly hard sell of his return to ring of honor for one night only at the next show. So very quick little hype job there. Then we see some clips of previous Ring of Honor Jim, Jimmy Jacobs Alex Shelley matches, including Shelley trying to take Jimmy out for good after their I Quit match at Joe vs. Punk 2. And that brings us to their match tonight. Alex Shelley defeated Jimmy Jacobs via submission in 13 minutes, 5 seconds, when he made um Jimmy tap out to the Border City stretch. I have quite a lot of thoughts about this, Matt, but your turn first. We've seen these guys wrestle a few times now. How How's this one stack up? Um... I think the main issue with this match is that nobody really knew what to make of it. Um, you know, this is Shelley's new babyface persona, which is not much of a babyface because he's like just like sad babyface who wants people to like him and no one knows if you could trust him. And Jimmy Jacobs is still a babyface. And Jimmy Jacobs is sort of like being the mean one in the match because, you know, he's, he's kind of being aggressive with Shelley for obvious reasons because Shelley, you know, has terrorized him as part of generation next for the past year and um but you're supposed to have sympathy for shelly so my point is the crowd was very quiet during the match the announcers and you know by the end they started getting into it but it was um it was quiet for a while um the announcers didn't totally know what to make of it you know shelly shook jimmy jacobs hand but he had his head down and was being very reserved um at one point, Jacobs actually jawed with someone in the crowd, and that's like the first time I think Jacobs has said normal English words on camera in ROH, um, as far as I can remember. Um, but um, they mostly do wrestling early, but um, but Jacobs does aggressively slap Shelley, and Shelley fights back hard. Um, so they're walking this line between like respectful wrestling match and match between two guys who hate each other. At one point, Shelley does a snot rocket. Um, but, um, you know, they're like, they're, they're doing, they do some big moves. Jacobs hits a spear, still not a lot of heat. Jacobs is biting Shelly. Um, not a lot of like, there's not a lot of flow to it early. Jacobs has the advantage most of the time, but I can't really pin down much of a story other than Jacobs is pissed. Um, he, he taunts Shelly by, by chanting his name, which is sort of another heel move. Um, Shelly cuts him off with a snap, a smack to the face, but Jacobs doesn't, back down um jacobs like he jumps up and down on shelly's midsection like he's jumping on a bed and then drops a senton on him and like how does that not hurt that seems like it's gotta hurt right yeah. <laughs> someone's jumping up and down on you and then just like falls on you it sounds like even if you have good abs it's, it's gotta hurt um but there's a lot of slaps like shelly cuts off jacobs again with the slap then hits another series of slaps and the announcers even note that the crowd doesn't know what to make of it um they, um, so Jacobs goes to the floor when he misses a spear. Shelly can't capitalize, and Jacobs slowly pulls himself back into the ring. Um, Shelly hits a real uh, hits like three really really good super kicks. Like I was really impressed. Like he's like hits he hits a big one, then another even harder one, then a third even harder one and gets a near fall. I don't know. I I thought those were like some of the best super kicks that I've seen in a long time. 
Um, obviously, there was some leg slapping involved, but I just thought they looked and sounded really good. Um, so uh, that was probably my favorite wrestling aspect of the match, those those super kicks. Um, but um, as they um, as the match goes on, the crowd does start to get a little more into it. Uh, Jacobs knocks Shelley off the top rope, then drops backwards into a senton. Um, they, 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 the crowd starts clapping, although there's still not like heat per se. Shelley escapes the Contra code and Jacobs hits a series of big boots. Um, but Shelley just grabs his arm, does like a Fujiwara armbar style thing, locks on the border city stretch. Jacobs gets to the ropes. Shelley escapes another Contra code, hits the shell shock into the turnbuckle, goes for another, but Jacobs escapes and hits his own shell shock for two. And there was no pop for that, but there was a pop when Jacobs locked in the Border City stretch. Um, Shelly escaped, got his own Border City stretch on, and Jacobs tapped out. So I liked the, past, the last couple of minutes, um, and I thought the execution in general was, was good up and down the match, but um, I think the lack of crowd heat hurt it for me. Um, the story was basically that Shelly was wrestling a bit more honestly, but Jacobs was still treating him like a hated villain, I guess. like That's sort of how I felt about it. I, I just thought the momentum shifts were a bit too random. So I would say solid, but uh, I don't know. It didn't click for me. I like this match maybe slightly more than you, but I agree. Like, like Usually I, I create like a little rating for each match in my notes. This match I didn't because if my rating would might just be weird. I, I think that's the word. If I had to sum up this match in a word, it'd be weird. And to start off with um, – Jimmy Jacobs, for most of his Ring of Honor run this far, he's been consistently more over than his push, I always feel like. Like, the Hus gimmick almost always gets over pretty big, occasionally not, but for the most part. Just an easy, simple comedy thing, the furry boots, the hussing. And um, and we, we've talked about in the past how Gabe didn't seem to be a big fan of it. Like, he'd often shit on it on commentary in little ways. And, and then we had, in the last few months, where he started teaming with the Second City Saints against against uh generation next in that feud and he's you know started hanging around ricky steamboat gay would kind of sell like um he's under ricky steamboat's wing and you know jimmy jacobs is taking wrestling more seriously and he's um he's dropping the hus stuff and he saw for a while it looked like he was stopping the hus stuff and then at um all-star extravaganza 2 for that opening segment with uh bobby heenan and colt cabana the good times great memories Jacobs does the husk, but I thought, okay, he's just doing that there because it's a fun thing for uh, Bobby Heenan to riff on and joke about. But then in this match, after kind of downplaying the hus, all of a sudden, Jimmy Jacobs' music, na- which is The Touch by Stan Bush, now has a whole new, like, hus soundbite that kicks it off. And Jacobs is hussing up a storm. Like, he's back to hussing regularly. There's a point in this match on commentary where Gabe is like, you can tell this is a grudge match. He says something like, you can tell this is a grudge match because Jacobs is hussing less. Matt, within seconds of Gabe saying that, Jacobs husses. Like, he's not hussing. And he's hussing the most he has in months. And, and it adds, again, you talk about the weirdness of this match where you were saying, it was like they were trying to find the, this line between like wrestling a more intense grudge match and still doing kind of like a regular entertaining indie mid-card indie match. Like it also felt like they were trying to find this line between Jimmy Jacobs being the husband that everyone loves and also like this intense guy that has a bone, a rightful bone to pick with Alex Shelley. And so the weirdness continues because then 
Well, we'll get to one point I'll say for the end. But um, then, you know, Alex Shelley, here he is. He offers the handshake at the start, which Jimmy Jacobs takes. And we, we the whole gimmick is, you know, Alex Shelley's bending over backwards trying to be this repentant very much. Oh, I'm sorry, everyone. I know, you know, I was such a jerk. I get why you're angry at me. And then in the middle of the match, as you point out, Alex Shelley blows snot all over Jimmy Jacobs. Like – how does that fit his new character? Like the, this, re, this guy looking for redemption and trying to be the nice guy. Y- you don't blow that. That's literally a spot he did as a heel the year before. And it's and, not, uh, it's not sportsman like to do that. And it kids it, just, just learn it, that. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and, and then the match. Yeah. The, the big story of this match was I do on one hand, I appreciate they tried to do this different. And when you've got, when you have two guys that have wrestled each other a lot up and down the road together, you always appreciate them trying to do something different. But the problem was, I feel like what they did different, generously, we could say the crowd didn't know what to make of it. Or if we were want to be undress, we could just say they, um, they didn't like it because a lot of this match was something you never see Jacobs do in Ring of Honor, which is he's actually like the aggressor. He's kind of beating down Shelly. He's doing a lot of more like simple offense, like battering ram, you know, shoulder blocks to the midsection. He's doing a bunch of headbutts, which he sometimes does, but he's doing a lot more, I guess, for lack of a better word, clubber in, in this match. And, um, you know, he's kind of in control, which normally Jimmy Jacobs, just because of his stature, he naturally plays the underdog who takes a shit kicking and gets his comebacks, which is a role he plays very well. And I actually thought he did a fairly good job of playing this different role, but the crowd just is not into it. Like, there's a moment in this match where um, uh, Jacobs has Shelley against the ropes, and he goes to do, a, like, a running shoulder block to his midsection, and Shelley gets out of the way, and Jacobs flies through the ropes and, like, crash and burns on the hardwood floor, and he sells for a while, and you would think, naturally, this should be a moment where the crowd really gets behind um, Jimmy Jacobs, and they have a lot of sympathy, and they clap for a comeback, and instead, it is one of the moments of which there are multiple in this match where the crowd is so quiet, you can clearly hear, like, the concert that's happening elsewhere in the Rexplex, like, louder than what's happening in this area of it. And that's not a good sign. And, and yeah, I agree with a lot of things you said. Like, I thought there was some good work at points of this match. I thought I agree, like, Alex Shelley's um, super kicks, that sequence of them was really cool. I like even... Sometimes I think this can be a hack thing, but I, I like that at this point in their feud, they had wrestled so often, they were doing the literal stealing each other's finishers. Like you mentioned, Jacobs basically invents like the Darby Allen's coffin drop with kind of like the jumping backwards no look senton. Um, and I even like there's a moment late in the match where, um, where, you know, Jacobs does the couple big boots to Shelly, and then he goes to run the ropes for the third, and Shelly just, like, lunges at him as Jacobs go, is going to the run the ropes and pulls him down in, like, one fluid motion into the Boris City stretch, which looks really, looks really cool. But, again, it's just, I like that they tried something different. It just seemed like the story was kind of inconsistent with where their characters are at, and it also just was like, it was clearly not the story this crowd wanted to see because it felt like at some points later in the match, they were more behind Alex Shelley than Jimmy Jacobs. And uh, yeah, it was weird, but, um, but also it's also, I'm not, it's not clear to me that that's not by design either. Like, are we sure that Alex was even booked as the heel in this match? I'm not. And that wasn't, that's another issue with the match. 
Yeah, that, that, that I wrote that in my notes too. That's a problem. And one other thing I just noticed as I look over my notes, Matt, I wrote – these are the kind of important things we cover on through the years. I wrote in my notes, late in the match, Shelly shell shocks Jacobs into the turnbuckle and Gabe says there's nothing but a steel knob behind that tur- turnbuckle padding, adding, and I quote, Jacobs just felt that knob, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a child, Matt, but I laughed when I heard that. Well, I didn't pick up on it, so I'm going to have to go back and watch that now. He literally says, Jacob's just felt that knob. So um, I, I'm immature, <laughs> I admit it. I, I, I laughed. Um, so after the match, Shelley grabs the mic and he says, in February 2003, he and Jacob's had their first singles match together. Shelley says the promoter's name was ENR, but then he goes, oh, that's too obvious. Let's call him I Rotten. And then Alex then goes on and says the promoter knew he was onto something after that match. And for the better part of 2003, he and Jacobs wrestled each other tooth and nail all over the place. Uh, Shelley says as leader of Generation Next, he committed multiple sins that personal Jesus Austin Aries doesn't have to pay for. Shelley does. Shelley says from now on in the months to come, he's going to earn the respect from Jacobs and from everyone else in the Ring of Honor locker room. He asked Jimmy for a handshake. And Jimmy teases that he's going to give him one, but instead he hits him with the Contra code, tells him to fuck off, and blows snot on him like Shelley did during the match. And then at this point, the crowd actually boos Jacobs. And going back to what you just said, Matt, I wrote in my notes, I don't know who is supposed to be the face here. And I thought it was really weird because, again, this is another moment where, in theory, Jacobs is completely in the right because Shelley was a complete asshole to him and, like, seen in, like, that last that clips from the last match they had looked like he was like threatening to murder him. So you can understand. But then at the same time, if you were going to build and end this, the do the post match angle here, that's built around Jacobs saying like, I'm not going to shake your hand. Fuck you. And beating him Shelly up. Why did they have Jacobs shake his hand to start the match? You know, if you're going to put, you know, why have again, why have Shelly do the snot rocket? If like, it just, when I, I don't know, this is, it just, like you said, I don't know who's supposed to be the face here. I do appreciate the aspect of it where he can't win back the respect of the locker room so easily. I think that's like a clever path to take. I just don't know if the execution is so great, at least so far. Yeah, and I and I do think um, – I, I agree with you it, that that's an interesting take because so often in wrestling what happens is a guy turns face and instantly he's teaming with guys that were like his like blood nemesis – you know, months earlier. And I do like that ring of honor, at least for this one feud, they're not doing that. They're like literally trying to take a more realistic approach of like, yeah, if you did turn face, especially if it was kind of like against your will, like a lot of people wouldn't immediately just forgive you that you had been a complete asshole too. But it is kind of get the face heel stuff's getting kind of muddled here. And I think sometimes it's almost muddled on commentary because I think maybe during this match or at some point during the show, um, Mark doubts Alex Shelley's sincerity about trying to turn over a new leaf. And then Gabe says something like, you know, no, I think he's being genuine. And then later in the show, I noticed when it comes up again, Mark Nolte then says something like, yeah, I think Alex Shelley is trying to turn a new, new leaf. Like almost like Gabe between like matches, like told him like, that's not the fucking, don't say that again, just another <laughs> weird little moment. Well, maybe maybe it's Gabe's job to brief Mark Nolte on that before the the, the they talk yeah. about it in the first place. 
But again, it just shows you how kind of muddled this this character is at this point, whether we're supposed to right. believe, you know, is he genuine? Are we supposed to be suspicious of him? Is it supposed to be a complete – are we supposed to have complete faith in him? Like I'm not even aware of that, quite frankly, at this point. But right, right. Um, we cut to Jim Cornette somewhere else. He quotes the band Journey and then says, "In Chicago, Bobby Heenan will be singing the blues in front of his hometown crowd." He miss he miss he misattributes the Journey quote to Shakespeare though, which uh, is another Shakespeare reference on this show. Man, this show is the Shakespeare episode of the qu- years. The Let quote, the quote, of course, by the way, is "Some will win, some will lose, some are born to sing the blues." Shakespeare did <laughs> not Shakespeare did not write that. <laughs> Um, Cornette, like he said in a previous promo, says he underestimated Bobby Heenan the last time they faced off. He says this, he said on in that match he got a couple of boys to do a man's job, and Heenan had the better team. So he's kind of shitting on his team, which was Roderick Strong and Jack Evans, pretty good team. Uh, Cornette says that one of them won't be coming back to Chicago, and he has a surprise for Heenan, something that he isn't suspecting. So that's just a couple shows down the road, another Cornette Heenan face off. So they're just doing, getting a couple mailed in promos on the show. We'll, we'll see Heenan's later to, to build up that match. This promo was mailed in, but it was not phoned in. Cause I thought it was a good promo. Cornette, yeah. Cornette with another good ROH promo. Yeah. I mean, as, as detestable as he may be, I mean, he could cut a decent, I mean, that's an understatement. A, a very one, good one, promo. one of the best promos ever. So yeah, I would say <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. Um, I don't mean this was one of the best promos ever. I mean, no. he is one of the best promos ever. And that brings us to a first-time match. Spanky takes on CM Punk, escorted to the ring by one of his students this time, Davey Andrews. And Spanky defeats CM Punk via pinfall 14 minutes, 41 seconds after he hits the slice bread number two. Matt, I thought this was surprisingly disappointing. Um for for most of this match, it felt like these two didn't get out of first gear. They didn't botch anything. They didn't do anything really wrong. Like, they did a lot of very low-intensity, basic kind of, like, feeling-out process offense you would see in the first few minutes of a, of a very good match. The problem was it felt like they did that offense for the first two-thirds to three-quarters of this match. There was lots of basic bat work. Um, they were doing pinfall attempts after really basic stuff like body slams and back elbows. It's all, again, perfectly fine stuff, but it made up most of this match. Things did pick up late. Um, there's a moment where um, CM Punk is going for a springboard move, and Spanky hits a great drop kick in midair to counter him. And um, CM Punk does this great like crash and burn where he just like falls straight down, just eats shit. It looks great. And from that point on, Spanky zeroes in on Punk's leg, and Punk's selling is good. In fact, particularly at the end, he has a couple really good moments of selling. Where one is he does the uh, he tries the welcome to Chicago, which is the he lifts the opponent in a double underhook and flips them into a backbreaker, but he can't put out his knee to make it into a backbreaker because his knee's too hurt. And then the finish of the match, he's going for his devil lock. DDT where basically it's like a DDT where he grapevines one of his legs around one of his opponents but in that moment he does that he winces in pain and that one moment gives Spanky the opportunity to like reverse things and hit the sliced bread for the win so I thought those were some nice moments and again those last few minutes were more exciting but to me it almost felt like maybe and again this is I'm not going to assume this is the case but what it felt like was it was almost like 
first match, let's call in the ring, let's figure out what we want to do. And it kind of felt like by the time these guys kind of got comfortable with each other and figured out what they wanted to do, there was only a few minutes left in the match. Like that, that's kind of like, I wouldn't be surprised if these two have a much better rematch in them. That, that's my kind of feeling. I thought this was only average and, and kind of disappointing. Um, I liked it more than you. I, um, I agree with you about the early part of the match. It felt to me like Punk maybe wasn't at his most animated or um, motivated. Like I, I don't want to say motivated, but like he wasn't. This wasn't a top level CM Punk performance at all. Um, I thought Spanky was a little bit more on his game um, early on. I thought you know the basic like sportsman like wrestling stuff was not great. Um, I don't know. It just it just didn't hit me that well. And Gabe was actually complaining about Punk not getting good babyface reactions in the Rexplex. He was like, and they, and it was weird because they cheered him when he first joined with Steamboat. Like, like you could almost tell, like he was general, he was genuinely like perturbed by the fact that this crowd made it seem like they were going to cheer Punk as a face, but now they won't. Um, so the crowd was not that hot for this. Um, they, um, there wasn't really much of a sense of urgency. But like what, like you said, once they started, when once um, Punk, you know, f- uh, fell outside and they and um, and uh, Spanky started working on the leg and ramming it against the post and stuff, I enjoyed it a lot more from that point on. Um, you know, Punk clearly was, you know, like he, he he sometimes seems like he's a little bit gotten to by the fans. Like he got up on the corner and like did the ten corner punches and was like taunting a fan while he was on the while he was doing the punches, and then he did a lot more than ten, but. And until Spanky hit an inverted atomic drop, but um, like see, there was a there was a point where some people started chanting for Punk, CM Punk, and then there was like a sucks in between each Punk, so the crowd was was still giving him a hard time. They did finally get into it um, after um, after that weird greetings from Chicago thing that um, that Nulty um, mistakenly yelled Pepsi plunge before. And Gabe feels the need to correct him. But actually, it's funny because the move that Punk hits because of the whole knee situation actually does end up being closer to the Pepsi plunge than it was to the greetings from Chicago. So Nulty was Nulty was right. That, that's, that's what I say. But um, <laughs> That's a t-shirt. We yeah. don't make t-shirts. Nulty was right. <laughs> that's right. Um, but um, but yeah, I, uh, the last few minutes I thought were a little bit – better in terms of the crowd interaction and there were some good reversals and stuff but um i thought this i would describe this match as pretty good but i would also say it was disappointing i definitely thought they i definitely agree with you that they could do a lot better um that yeah. that's for sure sometimes when you watch two guys have a ba- match you go oh maybe these two just clash or they don't have good chemistry and you go oh i wouldn't want to see them wrestle again like you come away from this match i think feeling like no, these guys could probably do better. You know, you 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 see it by the end of the match. And um, yes, for sure. So I, I should also mention Spanky came out to. For, this is the first time in Ring of Honor, at least he came out to uh, Danger High Voltage by Electric Six, which I think is one of the best pairings of this era for wrestler and theme music. Like it just fits Spanky to a T. Like that song's kind of awesome and kind of goofy, and it's just a good entrance theme. And I feel like it, it just. No theme, I think, fits Spanky better than that theme. And um, he also got a big welcome back chant when he came out. And my little Nulty comment for this match is um, Mark Nulty said at one point, for some reason, not just going crazy with the overselling with his loud tones. This was the night Mark Nulty decided to, like, exaggerate the importance of so many things. Because Nulty at one point during this match says, 
This is what he says. You could put this match literally anywhere in North America or Japan and draw a huge crowd to see it. Uh, yeah. Matt, they put this match in New Jersey and didn't draw a huge crowd to see it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, 1,200 is a good crowd, by very good crowd at this point by Ring of Honor standards. But to that point, it's in the middle of the card. Like it, it's Yeah, well, see what happens when you put it in the main event in um, Osaka. It'll definitely sell out. I don't, oh, know. I don't know. I don't know. He mentioned Japan. I thought that, that, that like, that's surprising because I don't think Punk was really – were either of these guys stars in Japan at this point? I, I know, I know Spanky was- had done like zero one, right? Right? And, and I think he was like a, a, a regular, semi-regular in Zero One. And CM Punk, I think, had done like maybe one or two tours of Zero One. And that's it. And, I, you know, I, I think Spanky of the two would be the more popular of the two there because they, they booked him as Leonardo Spanky because to Japanese fans, he looked like Leonardo DiCaprio. But, like, I don't think either of them were gigantic stars in Japan. Definitely not Punk. Um We should we should do a poll. Who's better looking, Brian Kendrick or Leonardo DiCaprio in 2020? Mm-hmm. Oh, see, that, that that that's a tougher one. Yeah, that, that's a tougher one. That this is that that is. I, I honestly can't come up with that. that that's a tougher. Question. Leonardo DiCaprio is still a highly regarded movie star who is yeah. considered sexy by millions all over the world. Just, I'm not I'm not making my personal statement there. I'm just saying this is this is a fact about Leonardo DiCaprio. Whatever you think about how he's aged. <laughs> Um, after the match, uh, Spanky and Punk shake hands, only for Prince Nana and the Outcast Killers to come back out and join them in the ring. Uh, Nana grabs a mic and says, he's been trying to figure out what the CM and CM Punk means, and he thinks he's figured it out. Common man, Punk, which I admit made me blurt laugh because it's so corny. <laughs> he's like Dusty, uh, he's like Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> um, uh, that would be DR Punka. Dr. Punk. Uh, Punk is bemused by this. Uh, Nana tells Punk to step aside because he doesn't think Punk even has the talent to be spoken to right now. Nana then sings the praises of Spanky and he offers him a spot in the embassy. Uh, Spanky says he's flattered and maybe a little curious, which I think gets a, that gets a chuckle from the crowd. But he's got bigger fish to fry. His eyes are set on the Ring of Honor world title. So thanks, but no thanks. At which point Spanky bails out of the ring. Punk is still in the ring, though, and he's laughing at this. Nana sees, he gets pissed, and he, he's pissed that Punk thinks this is funny. Punk goes to leave, but Nana stops him. Punk tries to leave again, and this time Nana slaps Punk in the face pretty goddamn hard, it looked like. Um, Punk grabs Nana, and the killers go to defend Nana, but Punk dodges out of the way, and the two outcast killers run into each other and clothesline each other. Punk then takes what a bunch of What a bunch of nincompoops. Yeah, definitely. Uh, At this point, the the, uh, embassy is literally doing Three Stooges spots. (laughs) I didn't mention this, but earlier in the night, I think when it was lethal wrestling um, uh, Jimmy Rave, Rave went for an eye poke. And Rave literally did the Three Stooges, like, hold your hand out straight and flat (laughs) to block the eye poke. Like, at this point, the embassy is literally just the Three Stooges. um, Hey, it works for me. (laughs) uh, Swingly. But uh, Punk grabs Nana, and the killers go to defend him. Uh, oh, I already said that. Anyway, Punk takes them out, the outcast killers out, and then he grabs their um, air freshener deodorant spray, and he sprays Nana down with it. It's the first time that's come back to haunt the embassy. And um, 
uh, as, as Punk does this, he's screaming, who's the common man now? Uh, Punk scrab, screams at Nanan to not bite off more than he can chew. And then, uh, he says, well, he says, uh, who, while Jimmy Rave and John Walt, he says Jimmy Rave and John Walters ain't shit compared to the Second City Saints. Not, Nana, you know, is running out to, outside at this point. Punk puts on Nana's bandana as the embassy has a tantrum on the outside. And I'll, I'll say this, Matt. First off, I thought it was entertaining, but se- and it's setting up a, you know, a big rave punk feud. But th- the other thing I would say is it was effective also in that it got a crowd that's, you know, as we just mentioned, New Jersey always like at best 50, 54 and against punk. By the end of this angle, they were cheering pretty solidly for punk. Yeah. This was, this was really well done. This whole post match. I, I have a, uh unequivocal thumbs up for this uh did a did a lot of stuff well yeah and it's a nice kind of you know you would think how are you gonna get into punk to have a feud with jimmy raven this is a nice little organic way where it kind of punks just a bystander and kind of being what who cm punk is which is kind of laughing at somebody else's more misfortune it pisses them off and we get this neither side will back down and now we have this obviously this whole um reason for the embassy and jimmy rave to have a a beef to pick with a cm punk so good stuff there Um, right especially knowing that it goes very well this feud so i i think that yeah this is a a great start to it yeah and and basically this will be uh punk's last baby face feud on the indies so um ring of honor or at least ring of honor ring of honor tag title matches up next B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff defeat the Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero, scored to the ring by Julia Smokes. And they defeated them in 10 minutes, 35 seconds, when Moff pinned Reyes after hitting him with the burning hammer. Yes, this is the title change. B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff become the new, for the second time, Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions. They had briefly held the title for literally an hour during Round Robin Challenge uh, 3. They win them back here. The Matt, the reign of the Pitbulls thankfully is over what'd you think about the not too long of a match that ended it yeah and i think the fact that it's only 10 minutes makes it probably my favorite havana pitbulls match so far in roh i um i thought it was quite good i thought um it was uh it was high high energy um the crowd was into it uh gave the crowd the ending that they wanted um with maybe a little bit too much of a contrivance after the match but we'll get to that um but, you know, the Pitbulls didn't have time to do their long, slow, boring work on the uh, babyface forever thing that usually drags their matches down. It was just – it had some pop to it. Um, early in the match, Moff was sort of like the immovable object. Like, you know, Reyes was trying to knock him down. Moff was sort of like not selling. Um, then then Whitmer and Romero came in, exchanged strikes, and Rocky kind of got the better with that one. And then Moff and Whitmer, like, they run wild early. And the crowd isn't so into it yet. I feel like the previous two matches kind of lowered their energy a little bit. But they work and work, and, and the crowd does get, get back into it. Um, Nulty announces that if Moff and Whitmer don't beat the Rottweilers, they have to break up as per Allison Danger's contract. And I was wondering, like, had they announced that prior to Mark Nulty just saying it in the middle of the match? Uh, I I don't think so. I think this was a step that ha- happened between like the last show they had. They were doing the uh, backstage segments where um 
Alice in Danger was like, you know, the Rottweilers are going to face Moth and Whitmer soon and I can give you like inside details and all sorts of stuff. But they, she never mentioned. So this must have been a step they just added to juice this up between shows. But like, you don't juice it up by just dropping it in commentary in the middle of the match. You know what I mean? Like, it might have been on the website. Unfortunately, the Wayback Machine at this point for this period of the Ring of Honor website is very inconsistent it doesn't really load a lot of pages so it might have been something they added on the website but certainly if you were a person that just watched the dvds and then keep up with the website definitely you did not know this step yeah they should have done a promo on this step if they were gonna talk about it at all i think is what i'm is what i'm trying to say although this is also on the same show where the main event has a step where the losing team has to leave for 90 days so a lot of uh, tag team related unfairness in these steps here tonight um (laughs) but um Anyway, that nitpick aside, um, you know, the, 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 the Rottweilers are, are – they're taking over. They're doing their quick tags. You know, there's some noise, some claps. You know, the crowd is starting to get into it, although the crowd across from the hard camera didn't look to be reacting at all, which made the crowd seem deader than actually it sounded. Um, but, you know, Romero, like we mentioned on the last show, he was starting to show more personality. He was dominating Whitmer. He was like straddling over him, smirking as he smacked him. Um and they keep doing quick tags. Reyes somersaults onto Whitmer, but then Whitmer hits like an exploder out of nowhere. Um, and um, but but uh, the Rottweilers keep keep control. Romero comes in and get and but Moff gets the hot tag, and this this is what wakes up the crowd. Moff's hot tag gets a pretty good pop. Romero drops, kicks him. He no sells it. He uh, hits the cannonball for two. Romero comes off the middle rope and gets caught with the belly to belly. He's able to reverse Moff's clothesline and get him in like a hanging body scissors hammerlock thing, um, but Moff quickly tags out. Um, then Reyes comes back in. Whitmer goes for rolling German suplexes, but Reyes reverses and goes for one of his own. And then after a series of reversals, Whitmer hits a Saito suplex, and Reyes hits a uh, reverses a body slam by Moff into a triangle choke. Romero knocks Whitmer off the apron, so Moff has to fight out on his own, so he has to power out of the triangle choke. Uh, Moff hits the half-Nelson suplex, and he does a great job of getting the crowd fired up as he goes for the burning hammer. And he hits it, um, and Whitmer holds Romero back, and Moff gets the three, and it gets a really big pop. And I feel like that was a perfect time to end it, because if it had gone on any longer, it would have just kind of got into that dull... Uh, rut that Havana Pitbulls matches often get into, but it did not. So it ended up being a good match, and it didn't overstay its welcome. It built to the finish. The finish got the biggest pop of the match, which is what you want. Um, so I thought it all worked out swell. I did not like this as much as you. I thought this was average. I thought this was this this was indistinguishable from a lot of um, Havana. I mean, I, I, okay, maybe it was a slight bit better than a lot of Havana Pitbulls tags we've seen in Ring of Honor because it was shorter and because I felt like B. Whitmer, Moff and Whitmer, especially Moff, brought a bit more intensity here. But I still – it just – every one of their matches, it just doesn't grab me. And um, I, 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 I even like their performances, I felt like they were wrestling this match like it was any other match. And it was Moff and Whitmer who were wrestling this like, you know, uh, it was going to be a tag title change. Like, like it was important and – the pitfalls they never really vary that much and i also felt there was a couple weak moments like uh 
Romero whiffed on a kick, which actually drew booze, and you normally don't see him whiff on something like that. And Reyes and Whitmer do maybe the worst-looking slingshot spot I have ever seen in wrestling. One of them where, um, you know, Reyes is slingshotting Whitmer into, like, the ropes where I think Romero is standing on the apron wing to attack, and, like, just... Whitmer can't get up with enough momentum and it just looks so awkward and ugly. And, um, but despite all that, like my Havana Pitbull's thoughts, you know, I've gone over them so many times, but like, it's not that their matches are something I'd ever call bad or drop below two and a half stars. There's always enough action and professionalism. It's just, they came with so much hype and got such a, a, a big push by ring of honor tag standards up to this point and got so many good opponents and so much ring time and did so the, just the bare minimum with it in terms of what we, what we got as viewers and the match yeah, I, I liked um I liked some of the early stuff of the match. I thought it was a bit intense, where they were just really going at it. Um, I thought Moff was really feeling it. He was almost wrestling this match like he had a chip on his shoulder because he was no selling a couple spots, like no selling chops, no selling a drop kick at one point, and he just crushed a guy with the, with his corner cannonball. This match, I felt like even the ending, even though it got a big pop, I felt like that even was like a little bit unimaginative for the end of such a long tag reign where. It's literally just, you know, Moff and um, Reyes find themselves alone in the ring, and uh, Moff hits the burning hammer, his finisher, and BJ's on the outside, like, holding back, and, it, you know, it wasn't really, like, it was pretty simple, although it was effective, but coming to the end of this title reign, I just feel like, I feel about this title reign the way some people feel about the Xavier World title reign. Like, it's, like, it, it's, that reign, you know, the Xavier one, I don't think it was great, but it had those two great Paul London matches. It had some moments, and some people just absolutely hate that. To me, this is the reign where I felt like we didn't get one truly great match out of these guys in their in their tag title reign, and they got to wrestle the Briscoes, although that was pre-tag title, but still they got to wrestle um, Cabana and Punk. They got to wrestle different combinations of Special K. They got to wrestle... Um, uh, Moff and Whitmer multiple times, and they got to wrestle uh, Strong and Evans. And at best, maybe three and a half, three and three quarter stars was maybe the highest they reached. And it's just, I just felt like they kind of went out the way to me the way they went in, which is kind of just a, meh. it was okay. I think it turns out that Havana Pitbull's greatest opponent in their tag title reign was Trevor Dame. Mm-hmm. Well, they uh, their, their, their it, number one feud is between is between you guys. Let me tell you, if they were having a feud, they won the feud. <laughs> they, they beat me, Matt. Um, I do say there was a nice crowd reaction for the win. Do you think, though, looking back, that maybe they should have lost the titles? I mean, and I don't blame Gabe or anyone for booking this way because clearly he was – I think one thing Gabe usually was good about was he when he decided to push someone, he would push them for a while before he gave up even if the crowd wasn't buying into it. I think Gabe was always good about like – giving guys some rope before he cut bait. But looking back and knowing that their ring didn't turn out that great, do you think that maybe they should have either lost the tag titles to Moth and Whitmer at the, uh, in the finals of that ultimate endurance match where the crowd was really into Moth and Whitmer there or the, uh, strong and Evans tag match where again, cause both of those matches, like there's a good reaction for their title win here, but I feel like both of those matches, you could tell that if they had lost on either of those nights, the crowd just would have exploded. And Instead, we get this. I mean, I, I, I think you're underselling how excited the crowd was here. 
But, I mean, I think just for purposes of their title reign not being that great, I would have liked them to have lost them earlier. And I think Moff and Whitmer probably would have been the right choice. Like, if they wanted to put them on Strong and Evans, they could have transitioned from Moff and Whitmer to Strong and Evans. Um, so I think I think Glory by Honor probably would have been a good time to do it. Um, but I don't think that this uh, this pop was lacking when when what no, Moffat was a, it was a good pop. It was a good pop, but I uh, maybe even a very good pop. Maybe I was underselling it a bit, but I just felt like there was a couple. There was two. Those two matches that I mentioned stood out to me as nights where I felt like. R- r- Watching them wrestle, like I felt like if if they, I could tell from the crowd's reaction if they lost the titles tonight, there's going to be a huge reaction. And like you said during your review of this match, it's like the crowd started getting to this match, but it was really only the pop that was really big. It was almost like kind of surprising how big the pop was because the crowd wasn't that into this match, but they were really into the title changing is the way I would put it. Right, although I do feel like this woke up a crowd that was not that into the previous two matches. I, I, I that, that's, that was my impression. I, it's fair if you felt differently, but that's what do, it seemed you, like to me. I know, and I agree about the crowd being taken out of it. Like, do you think, do you think it's the Shelley Jacobs match where the crowd kind of was out of it for a while? Cause yeah. I feel like that's kind of the point. Yes. I think like they didn't know what to make of that match. And they had, they, you know, um, the Punk and Shelley matches were both like on the long side and, you know, not super fast paced. And, and the baby, and they were both like two, I guess, babyface first babyface matches. So I think, I do think that that, I do think that kind of dulled the crowd a little bit. Yeah. Definitely a mid show lull on this card. But, uh, my other little note I have here is, uh, Gave at one point commentary when Allison Danger comes out during this match in the evening gown that she's been known to wear on recent shows. And Gabe says, I don't even know if Allison Danger has ever taken off that stinking dress, which is a little flub because we had just seen a backstage segment just like probably within the last hour of this DVD where Allison Danger's just in street clothes. So clearly she does take off that stinking dress, but just a minor thing. So after the match, Allison Danger, who's at in. It comes to the ring. She may have come down at the at the right at the end. I forget, but she's back in her evening gown. She grabs the mic and she says she has Moth and Whitmer's contracts, and that this wasn't a title match. Nulty just points out on commentary, kind of going against things that he's like. They on the ring introductions they introduced this as a title match. He just says um, Romero and Smokes try to pull the belts away from Moth and Whitmer, but they chuck both men out of the ring. Uh, Moth ends up spearing Julius Smokes into the barricade. Allison Danger then ends up cornered in the ring with just Moff and Whitmer. Moff snags their contract from her and tells Danger to tear it up. The crowd gets into this. They actually start chanting, tear it up, tear it up. Uh, Moff says if she doesn't tear the contract, Whitmer will tear will tear the head off her body. Allison Danger at this point starts crying, and she slowly and ruefully and sadly tears up the contract. When she's done... Whitmer, the nice baby face he is, hits her with the wrist clutch exploder. The crowd then chants one more time, but Moff screams that he has something better. And then he puts her in the figure four. Whitmer climbs to the top and crushes her with a frog splash. Bobby Cruz announces Moff and Whitmer's the tag champs as they pose. So, yes, this is finally the end of the Allison Danger owns Moff and Whitmer's contract storyline. I feel like the end would probably have had, I mean, the crowd seemingly enjoyed the end. I think it would have had more of an impact if Ring of Honor did not have so many women get beaten up by men constantly and including <laughs> Allison Danger, like it, it was not to me, it was not the big, oh, my God, finally, we get to see this moment that maybe they were hoping for when I mean, I think we've seen literally even seen Moth like 
beat up Alice in Danger on the first show in Ring of Honor, didn't we? I mean, like, that's right. I mean, Alice in Danger getting beaten up in Ring of Honor is literally a thing that we counted happening in the double digits of times. Because usually, when we when we had our those that violence against women streak, it was usually Alice in Danger that was on the receiving end of that violence. The other thing is the, the storyline was starting to get a little weird. Like the conceit of her owning the, the their um, contracts and being able to book them. Like in on on at first I thought, oh, that sounds like a neat little storyline. But in practice, like they mostly just got booked in regular matches, and like they won the tag titles while she owned her their contracts. Like seems like she booked them fairly well. Well, 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 well also, I mean, she said that it wasn't a tag title match, but. Like the drama of them changing it, like 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 it was just them saying tear it up, right? Yeah. And then she just did it. Like so, does that mean the title match didn't actually count at all? Like you know, it's that was a little bit contrived to me. Like what's going on with the contracts? Like what 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 what, what to what point do these contracts um, have any sway over what's going on? And how does ripping them up make the title match official? I don't understand. <laughs> but um, but you know what? Who cares, right? They they yeah. they, they they should stop doing the man on woman violence. They should stop doing it 15 years ago, but um, but they uh, but they won't. They won't stop. So next we uh, we cut to Gary Michael Capetta in the ring, and he says Ring of Honor is stronger than ever. That seems to be a real theme they're pushing here. But honestly, it was probably true at this point. And he says they're stronger than ever on their third birthday. Gary then says that the next show at the Rexplex will host the best of the American Super Junior Tournament, a one-night tournament that will feature eight of America's best wrestlers, the winner which gets of which gets a spot in New Japan's Best of the Super Juniors Tournament in Japan this year. Um, let's just say well, – we won't spoil too much, but let's just say uh, – the winner of the best of the American Super Juniors Tournament, a tournament that features eight of America's best wrestlers, is not American. I'll, I'll say that much. Oh, God. Um, we cut again to Bobby Cruz introducing Mick Foley. He gets your usual big Foley chant that he gets everywhere in Ring of Honor. Um, Mick comes out. He grabs the mic. And he sarcastically says, in the face of a lot of cheers for him, that he can see that the speech he gave him on the last show in Boston got a hell of a lot of heat. Uh, Mick says there will be booze for what he has to say next, though, which is that the big WWE star challenge match he lined up for Samoa Joe for tonight will not be taking place as the WWE superstar Mick lined up can't wrestle tonight. Mick says that a lot of former and current WWE stars would love the chance to beat the crap out of Samoa Joe. That gets some some cheers and a few booze. Foley then name drops Billy Gunn, Gene Snitsky, and Heidenreich. Uh, Mick says, though, he's going to level with the crowd at this point, and he's going to tell them what the original plan was. He says um, he was going to give an incredible build-up to this WWE superstar. He was going to introduce him as a former WWE tag team champ, a former WWE hardcore champ, a very good friend of Stacey Keebler, and then Test would come out like some kind of Greek Adonis, Foley says. That gets some booze from the crowd. Mick says he would have asked the crowd to take into consideration that this superstar hadn't wrestled in a while due to a serious injury and that he would have again – he then would have again hyped up the qualifications of this wrestler being a former WWE tag champ, a former WWE hardcore champ, and a very good friend of Stacey Keebler before revealing that the mysterious WWE superstar Mick was talking about was not Test but in fact Mick Foley himself. Mick says he would have then attempted to tear into Samoa Joe and reach the same levels Joe had reached with CM Punk, with Austin Aries, with Doug Williams, and Nigel McGuinness. 
Mick says he kind of felt like a jerk in Boston bragging about six-figure payoffs. He says that's not his style. He doesn't brag about how much money he makes. He's an economy air flying, Chevy Impala riding, flannel shirt wearing, pig squealing, wheeling, dealing. You know the rest. Mick says in some occasions he's wrestled for money. In some occasions he's wrestled for the love of it. And when things are really right, you get to make a lot of money wrestling someone you love. Which sounded oddly romantic from Mick Foley. But then Mick says... That was the case when I when Triple H led me to some of the great of my greatest matches. That gets a bunch of booze and a fuck Triple H chant. Mick says he attempted to build up a match with Samoa Joe that previous the previous month in Boston by laying a beating on Joe, but the truth is the next day he woke up and he could barely walk. Some fans shouts out something at this point, and Mick says, "Not hemorrhoids, you idiot!" Which gets a bunch of laughs. Uh, Mick says he realized that the days he could go out there and defy human logic were over. He's almost 40, and he doesn't have it anymore. Almost Mick's 40. A- it's just like there's so many wrestlers now that are like over 40 that are still getting – it's just funny to think about. Yeah, not only is this show the Through the Year Shakespeare episode, this is the people below middle age questioning their like mortality episode of Ring of Honor apparently. Cause That's right. First Carino and now Mick. Um yeah, Mick even makes, says, I made a call to Vince McMahon to tell him I would, he says, I recently made a call to Vince McMahon and told him I would consider wrestling Ric Flair at WrestleMania, which, for those who haven't been following, that would be a big change, because Mick was publicly saying he would never wrestle Flair after what he said about Mick. Mick says, you can imagine the heartbreak he felt when he called Brian Gewertz to have to cancel those WrestleMania plans. And just like he's having to cancel those WrestleMania plans, he's having to cancel this plan to wrestle Samoa Joe. Mick says he's looking at it as a happy occasion, though, because instead of a WWE challenge, tonight they're going to have a young, fiery challenge, which is like a weird, odd phrase. A young, fiery challenge. Mick hypes Joe's opponent as someone he has personally scouted, who, with a look Vince McMahon will drool drool over, from FIP, Vordell Walker. This is made hilarious, I wrote. Possibly unintentionally hilarious by the fact that when when Mick says all this about how he personally scouted him, Mick is clearly reading Vordell's name off of his hand. Like you can clearly see he's like looking down to read Vordell Walker off of his hand. Vordell then walks out. He gets a little bit of applause, but not a ton. Mick says Vordell is going to change a lot of minds. And then he introduces Joe as, quote, the other guy. Joe comes out and we get what is built on Kiss on what is built on cagematch.com as Mick Foley's mystery opponent challenge match number one, Samoa Joe defeated, defeated Vordell Walker with Mick Foley in his corner in four minutes, five seconds, when he made him pass out in a rear naked choke. Um, Matt, I just talked for a while. Matt, I got a, I got things to say, but did, did Vordell Walker... Did this look like a match booking-wise and performance-wise that was setting up Vordell Walker to be, like, a top prospect in Ring of Honor? Well, okay, so do you want me to talk about the match or do you want me to talk about the promo? Um, because uh, Don't you talk about the promo first, of course. I didn't even give you a, ch- a chance. Like, talk about that, of course. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm, st- I'm still to this day puzzled about what this all was supposed to lead to. Because, like, either we take Foley at face value and, like, what he said was going to happen is what would have happened and he just decided not to do it after what happened with Joe and, like, he didn't feel good after the the, the, the spots that he did in um, in January. That's very hard for me to take at face value because he didn't do much on that show and he did a lot more on this one, um, which even Gabe mentions on commentary. Um, so... 
was there another re- like was it WWE that wouldn't let Foley do it? But then he wasn't back in WWE for for a while after this, right? Until the until the Edge feud, maybe. Um, so I don't think it was that. Um, so I, I'm just curious. In your research, did you ever find out like the full reason as to why this didn't come to fruition with Joe and Foley? I um I, I uh, covered a little bit on the last show, and I have some stuff uh, I was gonna I'll I can get into after the uh, bestest Jack match uh-huh. spoiler. But um um uh, what I'll say is I think it was for the Observer. We'll get to they Dave. And, you know, this is just Dave, so who knows, you know, how good his sourcing is. But he's – and although we know Dave is chummy with both Gabe Sapolsky and Mick Foley, for his moment, Dave says that everything Mick said in that promo about the original plans and what happened is true, that that Mick – that wasn't a storyline. And um, It's just – the reason it's hard to believe is because, again, he does more spots here. And the next big match that he has in WWE that I remember was a match where he did all sorts of insane stuff with barbed wire and going through flaming tables with Edge at WrestleMania. Now, of course, I get it. It was with Edge. It was at WrestleMania. Much different amount of money, much different situation. But, like, you know, that, like he, went, he, did, he didn't have to do – he wouldn't have had to do the same over-the-top stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be true. It's just the fact that he did so many spots on this show – um, make me question it a little bit. Um, do you think that if that's what the angle would have been, the one he describes, do you think that would have been really good? Um, well, first off, about whether this was real or not, um, we did cover in at, on the last episode that after the it all begins um, confrontation he had with Joe, where, where like you mentioned, he did very he didn't take hardly any bumps. He mostly just did a little bit of offense on Joe. Uh, Foley did say even then, like in a in an interview with Between the Ropes Radio, he was very public saying like I didn't realize how much I would hurt when I get up in the morning after well, that. Like, well, that's I, what he said, but like, but does that necessarily make it true? I guess is what I'm is what I'm asking. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the one thing I would say is I know, and like you are right. Like we'll get to it in a bit, but yeah, um, Foley does end up doing more in this segment in terms of offensive moves and bumping than at any by far than any other time in Ring of Honor, and which does seem weird from a guy that just said that he had to cancel a match because after doing a little bit of not much at all he couldn't get out of bed but my theory i mean again mick foley could be completely bullshitting but my theory on this would be maybe mick foley being the guy he is felt guilty that he couldn't deliver a match so he was kind of like even though this is going to suck and it's going to hurt like this is as much as i'll give you because he does not give a match but he definitely gives more of himself tonight you know he does a few different moves he takes some bumps but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, on, on the surface, I get your point that it does seem kind of weird that uh, that he would take that kind of abuse if he can't wrestle. But again, maybe he just decided, well, may, again, maybe he felt guilty and it was like, oh, I'll give you this much and even if it hurts. But I, I could see that being true. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it could go either way. The promo itself was good. I mean, he's always a good promo. I feel like maybe it was on a little bit too long. Like, I feel like... I feel like sometimes on these ROH promos, he gets a little bit too into himself in terms of like just going on and on and on. But they're, they're good promos. As far as Vor- Vordell Walker, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been following some of what you've been tweeting about Vordell over the past week or so. Um, you know, whatever it was that led to Gabe liking him, Gabe never booked him like he wanted to push him, really. You know, like that's 
that's what I find. You know, other than on the trios tournament where like he, he teams him up with like some of the top stars, like like this match is a squash match. You know, like yes, like Walter, like I mean, I mean uh, Walker does do some some you know some moves, right? He he does the the the, the cross arm breaker, and Vordell gets out of like a, a choke early on, which I guess is a big deal, you know, to get out of the choke and yeah. escaping the full Nelson and hitting an Enzigiri, but. It's still four minutes long, you know. Um, um, it, it, I, I did one thing I found funny in the match, unrelated to all that. Nolte kind of fucked up because he said that Joe was prepared to face Mick Foley, and Gabe has to correct him, and be like, "No, Joe didn't know who he was going to face." Um, you know, like I guess the plan was for Joe to face Foley, right? Um, but um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, the match ended, was 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 a nothing match. Like, it's not like Walker had a chance to impress the crowd, like. Okay, I, I guess what I what I think about is this. This is ROH. So the way you impress in ROH is not by escaping a guy's hold, right? The way you impress yeah. in ROH is by having a good wrestling match, right? Yeah. And he was uh, he was in a, in the ring with, you know, arguably the best wrestler in the company, possibly the world at this point, and he did not have a chance to have a good match. So how you getting him over in ROH? I guess that that's sort of how I think about it. I mean, it all, we just saw in the previous show, it all begins an example of how you can lose to Joe and look good, which is Nigel McGuinness, where Joe won that clean. He was clearly booked to be the better man, but he, it was a, it was a decent length match and Nigel got quite enough where you felt like, oh, Nigel's a player, you know, he's, he's, pretty good too. And maybe he'll get Joe one day. And this is the complete opposite of that, where, it is a squash. Um, Vordell does get a little bit, like a, a, a bit of offense, maybe more than like a complete chud would get. Like um, at the very start, he gets a few little bursts of offense, mostly a lot of kicks and knees, including at the very beginning. He's able to, like you said, he fight out uh, Joe's rear naked choke, which Gabe on commentary tries to sell us just like this huge, like, oh my God, who's ever done that thing? But the crowd does not react that way. <laughs> and I think what hurts that too is the way Vordell gets out of this, he gets out of it almost immediately and he just hits a couple elbows to the gut. Like it's not a very dramatic way. Like if you're trying to say like, oh, this choke, it's it's impossible to break out of, blah, blah, blah. It should probably be more <laughs> more dramatic than I elbowed Joe in the belly button a couple times. Because uh, then it just goes, well, why doesn't everyone do that then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, he also gets to hoist uh, Joe on his shoulders to go for uh, a Death Alley driver, I probably, but Joe fights out of it. So at least you could say, hey, he even gets to lift him up. Not everyone gets to do that. Um, but at the same po- point, most of this match, like you said, was it was Joe hitting his signature offense, never close to being in danger at all. And um, the ending, I thought, also made Walker look real bad because um, the ending of this match is after Walker escaped the choke once. Uh, Walker standing across the ring from Joe. He screams at Joe, like, just bring it. He run charges at Joe from across the ring and Joe just kind of calmly sidesteps him and wraps him up into the choke. And it's over. And it's just like, he almost looked, it was almost a bit of a, like a wild, wily coyote roadrunner thing where he's just like charging at a guy and guys just like yawn. Okay. It's over. But I guess why we're talking about, and like Matt mentioned, I was tweeting about it on Twitter this week is because both on commentary and in the newsletter coverage that followed, Vordell Walker got a ton of hype. So Vordell Walker was an indie wrestler at this point. He had started wrestling a little bit in FIP. I don't know if he had done this yet, but he got a match against Austin Aries in FIP where apparently he impressed. And um, 
Gabe fell in love in, with this guy. We'll get into some quotes later. They're actually I, they're actually married right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but 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 Gabe on, on even on commentary, Mark Nolte says that Vordell Walker is considered one of the top prospects in all of wrestling. And then Gabe, you, you would think, oh, this is another example of Nolte being hyperbolic tonight and going you know into business for himself. But then Gabe immediately says, no, he's not one of the top prospects. I consider him to be the top prospect in all of wrestling. And then later Gabe says, I wouldn't be surprised to see Walker be a top star in the industry one day. So there again, knowing and remember Ring of Honor commentary at this point was post-produced. It was done after the fact. It wasn't done live. They know what this match is. And, and the, during it, they are selling him as, you know, basically the blue chip prospect in a way that they don't sell almost anybody. You know, they didn't sell Austin Aries this way when he came on his first night. They didn't sell yeah. Samoa Joe even this way on his first night. Maybe Davey Richards, but probably he didn't even get quite that level of hype. Yeah, and, and, and so to go on, I, I looked, I tried to find out who, you know, what happened with Wardell Walker. So I asked people on Twitter, we got some good responses. I looked up online, I did a bunch of Google searching. Basically, to give you a little understanding of where we're going with this, Fordell Walker works like a few more Ring of Honor matches, but nothing particularly major other than getting paired with a couple big names in the six-man, um, the trios tournament show. And then other than that, he's out of Ring of Honor. He doesn't even get that many more FIP bookings. He works on some other indies for, for a while. Uh, in 2006, he has a lingering injury that he gets surgery for. He misses a bunch of months with that. And then from there on, Vordell Walker is back on the indies, and he's continued to wrestle on the indies to this day, but not even like the most prominent indies. Like, I don't think he's been in PWG. I don't think, you know, he wasn't working like the IWA Mid-South, the Jersey All-Pearls, I don't think, at least not frequently. And looking at his cage match, he had in a few years ago. He had a couple dark match jobs for uh, WWE. I think two years ago, under a different name, he got squashed in one minute by Lars Sullivan on NXT, and that's about as prominent as his career has ever gotten. And it's funny because when looking looking him up, most of the people I talked to were like, "When I see him on the Indies, he's pretty good." They they were all saying, and yet he basically this run he's in right now is basically like. His high point, like this in, ter- in, term, in terms of profile, yeah, yeah, in terms of profile, not matches, because again, like, yeah, I, I would look up stuff like Death Valley Driver video review, and even they would talk about matches he would do after this, and be like, yeah, Vordell Walker's always a good worker. The only thing I could find out, and uh, Chris Zellner mentioned this uh, on Twitter to me, you know, he, he was like, you know, some wrestlers they maybe don't devote their entire lives to wrestling because they have a good job, and I did notice when I was researching him. Vordell Walker is a fireman. So that's a pretty steady, probably reasonably paying job that maybe maybe he had opportunities that he didn't take. And I guess my one other point about him is in doing research, I found interviews, one interview with him where, and I guess this will be a story we'll cover when we cover the trios tournament, which is a few shows away. But Vordell Walker apparently, basically, he outright admitted in this interview that like, I don't know what happened, but I just whiffed on that tournament. Like I was paired up with really great guys and I did not have my best performance. Yeah, I mean so, also, also I think hyping a guy so much in public like that, saying he's a top prospect, like that I I think that that's hard on anybody. Like like you know, the the backlash like he never like was around long enough to get a backlash, but I feel like if they kept hyping him like that, there would have been a backlash from the crowd. He would have had to turn heel. And when he comes out like again, to kind of get people in the mindset of what where he was at this point 
almost no one knew who he was. He had squashed uh, Cheech on the pre-show and a, at, on the Do or Die pre-show, and apparently from live reports and what you know, I think Rob Naylor tweeted and stuff like, they said Cheech made him look really good. And you can tell when he comes out that like, you know, probably the two hundred people that saw him on the Do or Die card that afternoon are kind of like, oh, that's kind of neat, and everyone else is just silent. You know, they're not booing him, but it, they don't know who he is. And well, well, remember that. Oh, also, the position they're putting him in. Like, in some ways, I mean, I guess they must have announced before the show, like, that what they were, what the crowd was going to get with Samoa Joe was probably not what they originally expected when they bought the tickets. But the Foley and Joe thing, at least for a while, was the biggest thing on this show, right? Yeah. Like, and so, disappointing to be like oh well actually what joe's gonna do is wrestle a squash match against something you never heard of you know like that's actually what we're gonna do instead i mean i know there's more to come but you know i'm sure that didn't help vordell's crowd reaction either that that's a that's a fantastic point too which is you know one of the things gabe's known for is you know developing young talent and giving them good shots generally you know there's some exceptions but this if someone didn't tell you better it was almost felt like they were he's being put in a position to fail you know like so many things, just the fact that, you know, they had previously promised, oh, a big WWE match for Joe. And then and then Mick says, oh, I could have wrestled uh, Joe, but I decided I just can't do it. And now here's his replacement, a guy you've never heard of before. And then he gets squashed in four minutes. Like, yeah, I, I don't know how you could book that and think this is going to help this guy. But yet they're selling him huge on commentary. He's, Gabe is selling him huge in the newsletters, which we'll get to. Like just – I do not understand. I, I just do not get it. Maybe um, Gabe was overselling him on commentary because he realized that in execution, the match itself didn't do him any favors. Yeah, like, maybe, comp, like overcompensating I, a little bit for the booking of the match. Maybe. I mean, after the match, um, Mick gets on the mic and he says, Vordell put a, up on a heck of a fight, which. Eh. Yeah, no, Joe, no, no, he didn't. He did not. Yeah. And then he says, but Joe is just too much for him. Luckily, um, Mick says as he rolls into the ring, he has backup. Mick says there comes a time in every wrestler's life where they have to pass the torch, like Flair passing the torch to Triple H. Mick says he passed Cactus Jack on to somebody who will take it higher than ever before. Joe Joe puts, I mean, fully puts over this mystery man over big and then introduces him, his protege, Ebetus Jack, as as um, Foley says. In fact, it's Abestus Jack. Out comes Evason in full Cactus Jack gear with the Mick Foley, you know, Cactus Jack t-shirt, the big curly-haired, brown-haired wig, complete, you know, with a beard on his mask. Mick calls him the new hardcore legend, and Mick says he's making this match a hardcore match, which leads us to Mick Foley's mystery opponent challenge match number two, hardcore match. Samoa Joe defeats Evason Jack, which is what Cage Match refers to him as, in six minutes. 27 seconds. So if you're thinking about that, if you've noticed that, you're right. Evison Jack got to last longer in the ring with Samoa Joe than super prospect for Del Walker. Um, and here's the crazy thing. The crowd liked this way more than the Vordell Walker. Man. Way is, more. 
this honestly is, and still to this day, I, I'm not speaking out of turn here. This is what I remember when I think about this show. I've had people in live reports say that this for them was the highlight of the show. Um, this is, this is the comedy match that Ebison did not give you earlier. Um, Ebison does a lot of weak looking kind of fully ish offense, but mostly the only thing Ebison does that's really Cactus Jack-esque is he does the bang, bang finger guns constantly. He does it when he's selling. He does it on offense. He does it when he's getting beat up. And it's, it's, it's a good, funny little joke. Um, he does one big joke where late at one point in the match, he climbs to the uh, Joe's lying on the canvas outside the ring. Ebison or Ebison Jack, whatever you want to call him. He climbs to the top rope. He teases doing like a big Mick Foley elbow to the floor. He then gets scared and climbs down to the second. He then gets scared and climbs down to the first turnbuckle. He then gets scared and climbs down to the ring apron. And then eventually he just, I think he just drops to the floor and drops an elbow. And that gets a big, he's hardcore chant. Um, so yeah, a lot of comedy, uh, um, Joe fighting back and beating him up. Eventually Mick Foley gets involved in the match. He, since it's a hardcore match, he's allowed to. He throws Jared into the barricade. He hits him with a clothesline. Um, Joe goes – at one point, there's a horrible botch where Joe goes to power slam Abestus Jack, but it looks like Abestus either doesn't know that's coming or he won't go over, and it's just a huge botch where he won't move for it. And one of the biggest they, Samoa Joe botches you'll ever see. Yeah, and they also do kind of the unprofessional thing, usually where they say in wrestling, if you botch a move, don't repeat it. They immediately repeat it, but this time they pull it off, so I guess in that sense it works. Um, there's a Mr. Sacco chant during the match, and then Mick later pulls out Mr. Sacco. He puts it on the bestest Jack's hand. Um, he lands the Sacco claw on Joe, but Joe just no sells it and bites down. Uh, Joe gets booze for enziguring a bestest Jack at one point, which is how into the, into this the crowd is. Uh, Joe goes for a lariat, fully trips him, and then rolls in the ring to beat down Joe along with Abestus Jack. They get, fully gets a chant for this. Fully takes a running start and Joe lariats him and then quickly takes out Abestus Jack with the muscle buster. Uh, Joe also does an ole ole kick to both Fully and Abestus Jack sitting in the, in a chair at the same time. So we'll get to it in a bit, but this was basically the blow off for the Fully feud. So it was like one part comedy match, one part like if we can't have Mick Foley actually wrestled Joe. This is the most we can give you. And it's it's definitely weird and a complete left turn, but I can't say it wasn't entertaining, and I can't say that the crowd didn't clearly enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add other than what you've already said. I, um, you know, the crowd did enjoy it. Like, they treated Joe as the heel, which I, you know, appreciated. Um, you know, uh, Ebison definitely, you know, was good at this, and like, he's, this was very entertaining, and this was, like you said, this was the comedy match I was looking for. But, I just – I don't know. I, I guess I don't want to project too much because if the crowd liked it, they liked it. But I can't help but think this had to be like – this is like disappointing on the whole that this is what this whole Foley thing amounted to after all this time. Like I mean, I mean I guess like if you're going to do a left turn and just do a comedy match, you know, that's one way to get out of, you know, whatever your plans didn't work out. You know, and plans don't work out all the time. But – and, you know, and Joe doesn't have to have, like, a big, intense physical match every time out. It's actually probably good that he didn't this time um, because, you know, save yourself sometimes. But I don't know. I just feel like that given what what was promised, this feels disappointing to me. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely felt some disappointment, and I'll, I'll say this: like, I think it's easy. I feel less disappointment watching it back. Like, uh, what, what sure, I'll say, sure. like watching this, like I kept thinking, I can't believe the crowd did not shit on this. Like, I can't believe they're so into it and, and accepting of it because I, I would have. If someone had told me like all this was happening on paper, like the night before it happened, I would have said that crowd is going to boo them out of the building. They're going to be so disappointed, and they're not. Like, it's shocking how. They're not disappointed with this. Like I, I, I'm, I'm surprised. It's Epson. Like Epson had never wrestled in Ring of Honor. He was like a cult figure in Japan that had done a little bit of U.S. indie work. Like, and, and they're like completely at the end of the day, you don't get the impression that they're disappointed. That's what this ends up being, which is crazy. It's 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 completely surprising to me. But, um, question for you, Ashley. Although Ashley, first I'll just get to um the last little bit of this segment. So after the match. Foley recovers, hits Joe with a double iron DDT, a baseball slide drop kick, and then he slides to the outside and hits a neck breaker on the floor on Joe. He charges at Joe with a chair, but Joe kicks it in his face. Joe then hits Abestus Jack with the chair to booze, and, it, and then this is where you see uh, the uh, Ole Ole kick to both in the same chair. Joe goes to continue the beatdown when a man in a Ring of Honor hoodie attacks Joe and throws him back in the ring, revealing himself to be Austin Aries. So yes, Aries is the man who, the mysterious man who handed a uh, Mick Foley the chair from behind the curtain on the last show. Uh, Aries puts Joe's head on a chair and does his power drive elbow onto Joe. Foley gets on the mic and tells Aries he likes a guy who can take advantage of an opportunity. He tells him to go on a walk with him and see if we can't get Brian Gerwitz on speed dial. So I got a bunch of notes from this, but first, Matt, um, this was, again, basically the end of this, the, the Joe Foley thing. The thing I want to ask you is, when I look back on all this, and I was thinking about this earlier today, I was thinking, you know, all of wrestling to some degree or another is people making things up as it goes along. But when it's done well, you, it doesn't really feel that way. And Ring of Honor, I think, has a lot of long-term planning. This feud, like every step of this, it really did feel like every show, like they were kind of just making it up as it was happening in a way that was real obvious. Like it didn't really feel like it had a good flow or a real, like even, even the idea that Mick Foley was supposed to wrestle Joe tonight. If Mick really believed that, why didn't they ever hype that? Like that, if Mick Foley had really ever intended to wrestle like Joe, you should like, that is a match you should promote for months in advance because that would honestly, I have to think would have been the hot best drawing match they could have run at this point in Ring of Honor's history. Yeah, that's another thing I didn't mention that I felt that was weird about it. Like, that's why this whole thing, it's like, I don't really know what was going to happen. Maybe just the whole time Foley was like, I just don't want to commit to anything because I don't know how well I'm going to hold up. Maybe a lot of it was like just insecurity on Foley's part too. You know, like, uh, you know, and I, you know, obviously he's a guy who's confident in himself because he's wrestled a lot and had lots of great matches, but you know, maybe he was just so unsure of what his body could and could do at this point that he just didn't want to give people something that they, you know, something that would disappoint, you know, because ROH had such a high standard of matches. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's a, I think that's very possible that Mick Foley maybe just felt like I'm going to play this by ear. And let's be honest. I mean, Mick Foley touched on this on a promo on the previous show, and I don't begrudge him for feeling this way, but there's probably some truth in it when he said something to the effect of like, you know, I don't have many matches left in me. And when I wrestle, Vince McMahon writes me a six figure check. Like as Mick Foley showed in the next year, like what, however bad his body was deteriorating, 
he was still willing to wrestle if it was in a big financial payday, which again, I don't begrudge him. He, he sacrificed a lot physically in his life, in his career. He deserves, you know, to have the last few matches be as financially, you know, profitable as they can be. But, um, yeah, maybe Ring of Honor just gave him a lot of rope because remember, like the Weekend of Thunder, one of the Weekend of Thunder shows, Mick Foley, according to the story, literally just showed up with no notice, like, hey, I wanted to watch the Liger match, and they just threw him on to do a promo. Like, you know, it's, it feels like Mick Foley had like a lot of leeway to kind of make things up and kind of set his own direction here. And this is how it ended up, for better or worse, even though we would get a few more appearances from him. So actually, uh, going to then the coverage of this, because we, I got some notes. The Observer wrote after the show, the actual plan when the angle was first set up was for Foley to tease it was Test, then attack Joe and reveal the mystery man was him. Dave writes in parentheses, Foley and Keebler are good friends. However, when Foley did the attack on Joe on, on January 15th, which would have been um, It All Begins, he realized his body was really trash this time. He didn't really even do much, but he could barely get out of bed next day and kind of realized it wasn't a good idea to try and do a Ring of Honor style match. He canceled probably shortly after that, since we heard the name Vorgel Walker as the mystery guy several days ahead of time. Foley brought out Walker, and the idea was supposed to be for Joe to make Walker a star, because Gabe Sapolsky is high on Walker. However, Joe beat Walker in four minutes and didn't make him a star at all. The second idea was Foley then bringing in the new Cactus Jack, which turned out to be Ebison from Osaka Pro Wrestling, who does a clown gimmick and worked earlier in the show. Ebison dressed up like Cactus Jack, called uh, Ebactus Jack. I love that everyone has a different pronunciation for Ebison's Cactus Jack name. Dave writes, Ebison in Japan sometimes does an Abdullah the Butcher gimmick as Abdullah the Butcher, and the crowd got into him in the match, although many were still disappointed by the lack of a WWE star. Joe won, then laid out Foley with a stiff lariat and a chair shot. That may be Foley's farewell to Ring of Honor. Gabe Sapolsky said it was scripted to possibly be his farewell if he chooses it to be, but he still may do some shows within short driving distance from home. Sapolsky believes that with Walker, Vordell Walker's physique and athletic ability, that as soon as WWE sees him, they'll sign him. So that may hinder him from getting the push he would have gotten. So I have another note before I get into that. I mean, what do you think about any of that? Like, especially again, that last endorsement, like Gabe actually has, I mean, Dave has Gabe on the record telling Dave, like, this guy is such a potential star. I'm scared to push him because WWE's going to sign him. I mean, I uh, you know I I mean I just have never I just I guess I haven't seen enough Gordell Walker to know that version of him, um, but you know Gabe does have a pretty good eye for talent, so I'm sure there was something mm-hmm. there. Um, as far as all the Foley stuff, um, I don't know. Do you think they would have been? It would have been better if they actually did go through with just having like Test wrestle Joe in a match just to like follow deliver on the WWE thing. Uh, I, I don't know. Here's the thing that's intriguing from that note is, um, the way Dave writes that note, he basically makes it sound like Mick Foley after it all begins decide, or at least at the time of that show thought he was going to wrestle Joe, that he was going to do this whole thing where he did a bait and switch with Tess and then wrestle as a, as an unannounced surprise match, which again blows my mind, but then just must've decided sometime between it all begins and this show which was just a few weeks that he couldn't do it. But again, that goes back to your point, which is if Foley had it in his mind on the last show 
that that um he's going to wrestle Samoa Joe. Why wouldn't you just promote Samoa Joe versus Mick Foley, the hugest match in Ring of Honor history, rather than this? I've got a mysterious WWE name, and then I'm going to eventually reveal it was me. But again, maybe it goes to your point that maybe Mick Foley was kind of keeping that like had it in the back of his head, like maybe I can't do this. You know, maybe this will hurt. Yeah, I mean. I mean, that's sort of what I thought. Like, I, I, that's that's the only thing I could think of, honestly. And Vordell Walker, again, like, we don't, we hardly see anything from him, but I've heard good enough, decent things. I haven't heard amazing things, but for those who haven't seen Vordell Walker, he's like a bald, not super tall, but reasonably sized guy who's got, like, good muscle and a good build. But, again, he's not Chris Masters, but pretty muscular for an indie guy at this period. He looks like he has fairly good athleticism, and he also has, like, a bit of an MMA background gimmick. He's wearing, like, the MMA gloves and stuff like that. But, again, like, yeah, I just – I don't know. I don't know what it is about him. Uh, going to PW Insider, uh, Mike Johnson writes – as I mentioned in the PWInsider.com Elite section on Sunday, and then briefly during my review of Ring of Honor's Elizabeth, New Jersey event on Monday, the original plan was for Mick Foley's mystery opponent for Samoa Joe. For no, the original plan for Mick Foley's mystery opponent for Samoa Joe was for Foley to tease it would be test, only to then attack with Joe and brawl for eight to ten minutes. So see, Johnson is not saying they'd have a match. The plan was for Joe and Foley to brawl for eight to ten minutes, is what Johnson says. Foley changed his mind leading up to the event which set the stage for Vordell Walker and Ebison to be used while Foley did some brief physical interaction with Joe, but nothing major. At one point, Ring of Honor discovered bringing in Test for the cameo, but not to wrestle as he is still recovering from neck fusion surgery from last year. And to film a shoot interview with Test. Once Foley backed off on the original plan with Joe, they never approached Test about making the appearance. So, goddamn Foley, you cost, you cost Test a booking, Mick. Um, Ring of Honor officials also played with the idea of booking WWE level names, including Billy Gunn, who was working another indie in New Jersey that night, and Al Snow, but opted not to do so. When Foley stated on the mic at the show, what, what Foley stated on the mic at the show was pretty much a shoot on the situation. But as I wrote on Monday, while the Ebison deal was entertaining, it also left the promotion with a rare bait and switch deal. Once was cute, but the promotion, the promotion shouldn't do that again, especially when they are playing to a truly hardcore fan base. McFoley is expected to return to Ring of Honor down the line, although it won't be anytime soon due to his schedule being booked up. The reveal of Austin Aries being the one who gave Foley a chair to attack Samoa Joe with was meant to build heat for the Joe versus Aries rematch this weekend. Ring of Honor officials had internally hoped that Aries might work the SmackDown taping in some fashion yesterday to add some extra heat on Foley and Aries after the two walked out on out at the anniversary with Foley claiming he was going to call WWE writer Brian Gerwitz on the Ring of Honor champion's behalf. And then I will note, Matt, that the Observer then wrote that on the February 22nd SmackDown, backstage being looked at was Ring of Honor champ Austin Aries. So he didn't get that segment Ring of Honor was hoping for, but he w did get a look, which obviously nothing came of. And then also the Observer, one last note, wrote, Samoa Joe suffered a chipped tooth on the February 19th event during the brawl with Austin Aries. Um, so that's that. So, yeah. Um, Matt, do you have any more thoughts? Just weird, again, I guess an 8 to 10 minute brawl is Mike Johnson's story on this. Yeah. Um, no, not really at this point. I mean, it's an, it's an odd situation, the whole thing. Yeah. 
So I think we've covered that pretty extensively. So next we cut to a clip from FIP where, where uh, when Gabe tells us that Brian Daniels, where Gabe tells us that the Brian Danielson homicide feud has crossed promotional boundaries. We see Danielson lay out FIP champ homicide with an elbow, and that leads us to the best of five series tape fist match numbered. This is the second match of their best of five series. This one, each one of the different steps. So this one's the tape fist homicide defeats Brian Danielson in 17 minutes, 53 seconds. So homicide now takes the lead two matches to none. Matt, what'd you think about this? Well, um, I liked it more than the submission match. I think, um, I don't think either of them were great, but I, I, I mostly enjoyed this. I thought, you know, the tape fist is not a stip that really, you know, gets my, gets my juices flowing. You know, it's not like a, wow, a tape fist match, you know, I, um, feels like a, like a throwback, which I guess maybe was the point, but they do lean into it at least early, right? They do like some boxing type stuff where no one connects. So, so then they just lock up. Um, but, um, they do sell punches more, um, like homicide drops to the ground when Danielson hits a punch a couple times. And that stuff, but pretty quickly they go into the crowd. I should mention that Reyes is in, um, excuse me, that Romero is in Homicide's corner, and Smokes and Reyes aren't because they apparently were injured by Dan Moff, um, based on the storyline. But so, so anyway, so they, they go into the crowd, they're fighting, Homicide's attacking Danielson's shoulder with a chair. Um, Homicide sets up a chair across two other chairs and tries to suplex Danielson onto it, but. Excuse me, but Danielson reverses and suplexes Homicide instead. Um, they go all around the crowd, whipping each other into chairs, you know, as you do. Um, homicide attacks Danielson with a big garbage can. They fight onto the bleachers, and Homicide DDTs Danielson on top of the bleachers. But Danielson, like, this is one weird thing. Danielson gets back up really quickly after being DDTed on the bleachers, and then he kicks Homicide down the bleachers. Um, so I don't know. That's it was like it's weird to have a big spot where you're DDT'd on like metal bleachers and then you're just immediately in full control. But whatever. Um, then they go to another set of bleachers where Danielson is choking Homicide on top of them until Homicide hits an eye poke, which was actually seemingly more devastating to Danielson than the DDT on the bleachers. Um, but that's when Homicide pulls out his fork and he holds it up high along with the middle finger. Um, Danielson does a does a blade job. Um, I have to admit, I did not expect a uh, a fork in this match, or n- never mind a fork that was being done in the crowd because they were still in the crowd while this was going on. Um, Gabe mentions this is the first time Danielson has ever bled in ROH, which I don't think I realized. Um, but um, they get back in the ring. There's forking going on uh, until the ref takes it, and that allows Danielson to fight back. Um, um, he keeps pulling Danielson up by his ears, but uh, but Danielson gets a burst of adrenaline, hits the airplane spin, but he can't do it for long because of the blood loss. So Homicide is able to grab him, grab his nose, and take him down. And so Homicide is really dominating here for a while. He's punching and kicking Danielson in the head. He hits the old school expulsion, which Gabe identifies as a uh, doing Carino's move after Carino did his move in the first match. So they're building up a match that they will eventually have, like, what's that, 10 months after this? Um, <laughs> but um, Homicide, he misses an attack off the ropes. Danielson fights back. Danielson goes for the surfboard, and Homicide yells, this shit again, which I thought was enjoyable. And it's also a precursor to when when Danielson would do that move when the CZW feud was going on, and the fans would chant same old shit at him. Um, mm-hmm. So Homicide apparently invented the same old shit chant. Um 
But Danielson locks it on. He 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 uh, he cranks you know Homicide's head back, but um, Homicide breaks it up with another eye rake. Um, Homicide. I mean, Danielson blocks the lariat, gets in the cattle mutilation, turns that into the roll up that he won with at All Star Extravaganza, gets a two count. Uh, then Danielson hits the top row belly to back suplex. Both guys are down. Then they, they trade punches to the head, go down again, and that's when Smokes comes out while uh, Romero's distracting the ref, and he, he sprays water in Homicide's face, and Nolte is really mad about it. He's, like, screaming, like, he's, he's what is he doing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, in the, in the pantheon of interference, this doesn't seem so bad to, yeah. to be sprayed. But then he does tape brass knuckles onto Homicide's fist, which, you know, you can be upset about that, but Nolte is just very annoying with the yelling here. Like, I thought this was, like particularly annoying yelling by Nolte. What's he doing? He's putting the brass knuckles, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, obviously the tape fists um, were like were not that good because they should have just done brass knuckles on a pole. I think I might have said that before um, because it ends up with brass knuckles anyway. Um, Homicide hits him with the tape knuckles fist and falls on Danielson and gets the win. So he's up 2 nothing. Um, I like that the match had like different segments like the, um, the the brawl in the crowd, then Homicide working on on Danielson, then a bit of the, the comeback, and then the uh, the cheap finish. I enjoyed that aspect. I didn't think this was one of their best matches, but I did think that it it had um it was more entertaining all in all than the first match of the series. Uh, I, I think I like this match a bit more than you. I thought it was very good. I agree, it wasn't great, you know. And you would expect from sometimes with these. I mean, what we're learning is these guys don't always have great matches. But I mean, I would say like three and a half, three and three quarters. Like it was very good. I, I what I liked was um on their last match, which was a uh, submission match. We had this big, crazy crowd brawl that had to get legitimately stopped. We went into reasons on the last episode. And then they just had this very abrupt style change where they worked a pretty straight submission match. I feel like we kind of got the crowd brawl we wanted in that match. And this one, maybe it's not quite as intense. And and like you said, there was maybe some moments that were a little weird. But overall, it was lengthy. And it made and more most importantly, it made sense with the stip that a tape fist match, maybe you would have a fist fight that spills out into the crowd. We get the novelty of Danielson bleeding, which, like you said, Gabe said, I, and I have no reason to doubt him. My memory's horrible, but I don't think we've seen Danielson bleed in Ring of Honor from the head like this. This is a clear blade job. Um, and then when they, uh, I, when the match went back in, I felt like they did a good job of straddling the line between working the tape fist step, but having kind of a regular match you'd want to see from these guys. Like they did throw a lot of punches in this match. Uh, mostly they're just regular boilerplate brawling punches, but there were a couple neat moments like one time where Danielson is getting, um, trying to get, um, homicide to a surfboard and he's punching him in the back with the tape fist to loosen him up so he can get him into it. And then there's another moment where homicide goes for the lariat and Danielson punches him right in the arm to block it, which I thought was a cool moment. I could have done with a few more moments like that, honestly, because those were fun moments. I, I thought one thing that was interesting in this match was, the two biggest pops in a match with blood and crowd brawling and, and all sorts of punches and brawling, you know, it, the, the two biggest pops in this match were both for submissions. I think, I think both the, the really bendy surfboard choke where, um, Danielson bends the guy almost backwards. And then the cow mutilation both got pretty surprisingly big pops. Like that's what the crowd made just because they bought them as finishes or because they're cool moves. 
my my biggest even so overall I thought it was very good, but my biggest flaw in this match is that finish. It's another bad finish on this night because it requires, you know, like because Julius smokes and was selling being hurt from being speared into the barricade by Moth in, in that tag match. Um, Ricky, I mean, Rocky Romero, who was at ringside for this whole match, he has to talk to the ref for like what feels like, I don't know, it was probably only like 90 seconds or 60 seconds, but it feels like an hour. And because even when Smokes comes out, he's like limping and stumbling, like he's selling that he's still hurt. So it takes him a while to get down there. And then it takes him a while to like tape the, uh, the brass knucks to the, uh, to the fist and i realize it kind of has a cute payoff because the after their last match danielson actually actually um hit brass knucks on homicide so this is kind of a cute little playoff of that but it just the interference it was so ridiculous how long it took and how long the ref had to be distracted and just seeing such a like cheap and poorly done in that sense and uh, but overall i still thought it was very good and um Maybe the match highlight, though, was there was a scary-voiced fan that kept cheering on Danielson aggressively. And then later on, as Homicide is fighting in the crowd about to fork Danielson, you can hear a fan clearly scream, Potato salad, bitch! So that was probably uh, the highlight of the match. <laughs> also, uh, Homicide's counter to the airplane spin, very good, where he just grabs Ham- uh, Danielson by the nose as he's in the airplane spin and, like, drags him to the mat into, like, a crucifix. That's a good counter. Um, so after the match, uh, Smoke spits on Danielson, and we move on to uh, backstage for intermission, where Gary Michael – and you're wondering, why is intermission so late? Well, it's because the last two matches on the show were cage matches, so you need intermission to set up the cage. Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with the new tag team champions, Moth and Whitmer. BJ says, this is like winning the Super Bowl. Moth promises us that this reign will not end in an hour like their last reign, and it does a little bit better, but poor Moth, you uh, you don't know what your future is, apparently. Moth says they will go down as the greatest and longest reigning Ring of Honor tag champs, because you're going to have to kill them to take the belts from them. Spoiler, not going to have to kill them. You're not even going to have to wrestle them to take the belts from one of them. Uh, Moth then licks and kisses the belt. As Gary tells BJ, they have some birthday cake for the third anniversary celebration. And one of the cutest and also weirdest left turn ends to a serious promo. BJ just gives an intrigued birthday cake. So I love that they go the swing mat from very seriously. This is a huge moment for us. We're going to defend these titles. You're going to have to kill us too. Gary just out of nowhere like, guys, word to the wise. Get the birthday cake. Well, the birthday cake's getting is good. Like I just, and, and BJ does not know. So he's like, huh. Gonna get some birthday cake. Yeah, yeah. That just reminds me of the uh, the first anniversary cake situation. But um, they say in the promo they're going to be the longest ROH tag champs. Nope, and the greatest. Nope. 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 <laughs> uh, and we'll get. That's another story for another show. But uh-huh. um, elsewhere backstage, I don't even know if I know how all that story yet. But uh, elsewhere backstage, Brian Danielson is with Sugar Sean Price. Danielson asks Sean if he saw what Homicide hit him with. Brian then says he heard Homicide said that he'd fight Danielson anywhere at any time. Danielson gets in Price's face very aggressively and tells him to tell Homicide to meet him in the parking lot after the show. So, and that brings us to semi-main event, or I guess you could say first half of a double main event. Ring of Honor world title steel cage match. Austin Aries defeated Colt Cabana in 20 minutes, 38 seconds by escaping the cage. So this was a cage match that was escape the cage or pinfalls. 
And um, so I'll just say it right up front. This was my match of the show. I thought this was low grade, like four star grade. And here's the funny thing about it. Um, usually when I watch Matt in Ring of Honor and basically indie wrestling and even now modern wrestling by this point, um, pretty much every match guys are trying hard. This isn't like the eighties where wrestlers were working on such a death schedule or they didn't really have pride in like their work. Some, not all wrestlers, but some wrestlers, or again, the huge death schedule some promotions had where you couldn't go all out or work really physically in wrestling. Nowadays, pretty much every match wrestlers are giving really hard physical effort, but some, so a lot of times, when I don't like a match, I find, especially doing this podcast or other things, I find saying, well, the effort was really good, but it was just missing something. It was, the story wasn't there or the selling was a little off or there was just something missing or whatever. And usually when I say that, that usually means I'm going to give a match like a good, a very good, going to give them like three and a half to three and a three quarter star match. I'm never going to say a match like that is great. This is a match where something was missing and I think they worked so hard. I have to say it's great. I think this is a match that is great on effort alone. Like, yes, this had a bit of a storyline going into it. Yes, this is a rematch of the last match. This isn't a great feud. This isn't a really heated, legendary rivalry. This match itself doesn't have a particularly great story to it other than the usual cage escape tropes. But god damn do these two guys work hard you can tell they're trying to live up to the standard of ring of honor main events they're just working really hard hitting hard um you know you get you get the blood here it's it's hard to single it out to an exact moment but there's just a lot it's just these guys are just trying to will themselves to a great match. And I think they just barely get there. And I guess Matt, before I hand it to you, the one thing I would say that where this match really succeeds for me is this is not the best cage match I've ever seen far from it, but I think this might be the best match when it comes to you or one of the best ones I've ever seen when it comes to utilizing the door, because usually in cage matches, at least me as a kid that grew up with mostly with WWF, you're used to most of the cage escapes or at least the really dramatic ones are crawling over the top of the cage. And it's obvious why, because it takes longer so you can build more drama. It often leads to guys getting thrown off or near the top of the cage, all of that. And so it makes sense why you'd work at that matches that way. But this match, there's a few climb the cage over the top escapes, but for the most part, the, and there's a couple pinnet fall near falls, but for the most part, the escapes are all centered around the door. And I think these guys do a really good job of showing you what, how the door escape can be actually dramatic in a cage match, which is, it can happen so quickly. Like the very start of the match, they get, they get into like a grapple in the, in the corner and the and Colt like does a clean break as the corner has the door. And as Colt backs away, does the clean break, like Ares realizes he's in the corner where the door is and almost escapes right there. And it makes you, it reminds you, Oh, like a guy can like win the match in a second if they're near the door. And like later on, I think Colt gets bumped into that corner and he like falls, not intending, but he falls almost through the door door completely. And Ares has to grab his leg and slowly pull him back in. It's like a very panic, exciting moment because it makes you realize that the magic of the Kate of the, of a door escape Again, is it can happen in the blink of an eye when you're not even expecting it compared to like the cage, climbing the cage, you see that coming and it all builds 
to the finish, which is one, a fantastic finish in a lot of ways. I have a nitpick I can get to later, but um, Colt goes to climb to the top of the cage while Ares is down. Ares recovers and climbs back to meet him. They brawl on the top rope for a while. Ares gets knocked off. Colt keeps climbing, and now he's all the way on the other side. He's over the top, coming down the other side of the cage. And he's at the point where he's probably like 15, 10, 15 seconds, maybe less even, from being able at a, at a height where he can just drop down, touch the floor, and win the match. He's so far down, Ares is never going to be able to catch up. At this point, Ares gets up. He sees what's going on, and he just looks to the door. And the ref opens the door, and Ares takes a running start and runs through the open door and does a tope con hilo, like rotating, f- diving through the door, landing on his back and selling how much it hurts, and just sacrificing and basically winning like seconds before Colt was going to drop to the floor. Really cool, inventive, dramatic finish. And again, I thought this match was great. Just barely great, but I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I would say our opinions are, for once, completely aligned on this one. Um I feel like I like this match pretty much exactly as much as you did. Um, I thought it was low, great, um, great effort. Um, I, I think the one, the one other cage match that I could think of where they really did great work with the door was the Bret Hart versus Owen Hart match from SummerSlam '94. Um, there's a lot of good like door spots in that match, um, and I think I feel like this that match inspired this one at least a little bit in terms of what they did with the door. But, you know, they modernized it. I feel like, like you said, they, they went all out. Like, Cabana was definitely more serious during his entrance, but he wasn't, like, furious. You know, this wasn't a feud that really screamed, we need a cage match to blow it off. But yeah. they, they, they did make the most of it. Like, you know, they, they started off the match where Cabana seemed pissed about what happened at the last show, but it's not like he went after Ares all hard at the beginning. They did, they did wrestling, you know, at the beginning. And, they, they, and then they tried to do, like, quick escapes and stuff. But the pace was really good. I also think they lucked out in that the crowd, which was up and down during the night, was very into it right off the bat. You know, I'm sure this was right after they came back from intermission because in ROH there was always the intermission. When, when they had a cage match, they would always not do an intermission in the middle of the show. They would save it for when they were putting up the cage. Um, so I think that's why they so often did like two cage matches. Or like if they were going to do a cage, they would do like a steel cage warfare match that would last like 30-something minutes, or a cage of death that would last like an hour, you know? Like, I think as opposed to just, like, putting up a cage for a 10-minute cage match, you know? Um, but, um, so, uh, you know, the crowd the crowd was into it pretty early on. They did, like, some classic cage match stuff. They were, you know, raking faces across the mesh. At one point, Nolte, after Cabana's bleeding, says that Cabana is no stranger to blood. And I was trying to think of was Cabana bleeding in other ROH matches? And the two that I could think of where he might have bled, and I don't remember for sure, were that was the tag match with Punk against Raven, and um, or the tag matches with Punk against Raven and Daniels, or Raven and Whitmer, and also the battle lines are drawn six-man. Do you remember if Cabana bled in either of those matches? Because other than that, I can't remember. My memory for that stuff is horrible, but I think the larger point is Colt wasn't like... No, if he, if he had bled before, he wasn't a guy that bled even like semi regularly. It, it was yeah, you, you wouldn't be known for that. He wasn't he wasn't like oh, cult is comfortable with bleeding. Like eh. yeah, that's a little bit of a stretch. I'd agree with that. This was the most intense he wrestled so far in ROH. You know, and I thought you know Cabana whenever he would have title matches, I think he'd only had one title match before this, um, before the last Aries one. It never felt like you know a top tier title match 
Um, you know, he, he always felt like it was a it was an afterthought of a title match, never really a main event. Um, but this felt like a main event, and um, you know, he really felt like he belonged there. And Aries, you know, he had a lot to live up to. So to have a match this good in your second title defense, I think, is a pretty good feather in your cap. You know, he really felt like a champion, at least during this match. Um, and there were some other pretty cool um, inventive spots related to the cage. Like at one point, they were standing on the top rope, like not in the turnbuckle, but like in the middle of the rope leading against the cage. And Aries went for a crucifix bomb off the top of the cage, but Cabana held onto the cage and Aries f- fell off. And then Cabana hit a moonsault and he landed like right on top of Aries' head and shoulder, like bent him up badly. Like that could have gone really bad, but apparently yeah, it did. It's- it's like he landed on so high, like from directly above, that rather than Aries being able to like take a, a bump where he like falls backwards on his back, it's like he just crumpled straight down. Like that yeah, was scary. It was, and like I mean, it apparently didn't have any impact. Luckily, and then and right before the finish, um, when um, when Cabana was on the top rope and Aries jumped up to stop him, you can hear a fan. I think someone, but I think it was a fan yell really loudly, oh, I just got spit on me. That's the second time. That's like, <laughs> that's just such a specific thing to hear on camera. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, that, that's it. Literally, I quoted it. That's what they said. Um, but, but Aries, he, he hit a top rope for Hurricane Rana off the middle, in the, in the middle of the cage, like, which was a really good spot. Um, that's another really cool, innovative spot. And that's when Aries does the thing where he does the corner drop kick with Cabana by the door. And Nolte is like, oh, Aries should be worried about dropping Cabana through the door. And Gabe, I guess Gabe obviously knowing what's going to come, tries to blow it off. He's like, oh, no, 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 that, that won't happen. And then it happens. It's like <laughs> like another situation where Gabe is probably mad, like Nolte spoiled the spot. Um, it, 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 it's probably not a coincidence that Mark Nolte only has a few shows left. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, – but yeah, so Aries is bleeding at this point. Um, Cabana hits a spinning razor's edge on Aries for two, and the crowd really bought that near fall. Um, goes to crawl out of the cage, and that's when Aries tries to climb over them, and then Cabana climbs over him, and then Aries climbs over him, and Aries can't get over him, so he just slams Colt's head in the door, which looked like it hurt a lot. And I hope they wouldn't do that spot anymore, <laughs> slamming someone, slamming a cage yeah. door on someone's head. Um, I hope we've retired that spot, but. Um, that's when um, Ares climbs up, Cabana gets him on his shoulders, and Ares hits the reverse Rana, which gets another huge po- near-fall pop. And Cabana reverses the Brain Buster and suplexes Ares three times into the cage. And the third time, Ares is sort of like in a Tree of Woe version. And then when, when Cabana hits his own Brain Buster, Gabriel's dangerous for some reason. I don't know why Ares... Brain busters don't get that. Uh, don't you feel like the, the things that get the dangerous call are fairly random? Yeah, yeah, and it's weird because there's probably spots that like you like, would think would get them and they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah like the, probably like three or four spots in the main event that we're going to cover should get danger, like maybe half the spots because you know compared to a brain buster. Yeah, it feels very random. Um, but that, but. That's when they that's when they get to the finish where they they fight on the top rope. Cabana hits a number of punches. Aries drops 
That's when Cabana has his chance. He's almost down, and Ares does that suicide tope dive through the ropes. It just the execution was so good. It was such a, it was had to be the best escape the cage finish ever. I mean, I guess you know you have that Paul Orndorff Hulk Hogan where they land at the same time, even though I guess that's probably edited right. But um, this was so well timed, so good. Uh, very impressive match. Definitely the match of the night. A a highlight a highlight match. Like if you're going to do a 2005 year end comp, there are a lot of great ROH matches in 2005. But I think this one does deserve to be part of the part of the the mix. And again, that ending is so good. Like anyone that's doing a future cage match, if you have a cage with a well, I guess all cages have a door, but like um, generally, but like. You know, it, this match isn't that famous. Like, steal this finish. This is an amazing finish that hasn't been done to death. Like, I mean, I guess it's hard for me to say steal this finish when it involves someone having to take, do a, a tope to the floor with nothing to catch them. So maybe that's not great. But, like, if you're willing to do that, steal this finish because it's really cool. Um, uh, a couple other just quick little moments. Um, I liked – that sequence you mentioned where a cult suplexes Ares into the cage multiple times, and then that last time he just kind of holds him and partly balances him upside down on the ropes against the cage. There's a moment there where, like, while he's doing that, he does, he's like, what am I going to do? And then he just goes and he punches Ares really hard in the stomach while he's upside down. I was just like, holy shit. Like, it, I, I th- it almost felt like Colt was just thinking, like, I got to do something right now. And he just punches him while he's upside down in the gut. And um, the, there's another moment where uh, where Ares is in the tree of woe, and when he sets up, he grabs Colt, and he basically does what's like a Spike Dudley acid drop, which I thought was like a cool little improv move. And then finally, the Mark Nolte, my Mark Nolte commentary moment of the match was Nolte at one point says, Austin Aries, more vicious with every title defense. Matt, this was <laughs> his second title defense. <laughs> So he literally had to be more vicious than his last match. I don't even know if he was, you know, after he really hurt Cabana real bad in that first match. (laughs) Yeah, so another weird – again, not a great night for Mark Nolte. So um, little notes from some of the newsletters. The Pro Wrestling Torch wrote that Ring of Honor promoter and booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the Torch he is thrilled with the cage match Austin Aries and Colt Cabana put together on Saturday's third anniversary show. He's gave his quote as saying, quote, Ari, Austin Aries and Colt Cabana hit a major home run with that steel cage match, says Sapolsky. It was just an awesome match that doesn't lose anything on tape. It was easily Cabana's best match ever, and it was the first classic of Aries' world title reign. The only comparison is to the Jay Briscoe versus Samoa Joe match from a year ago is that they were both world title steel cage matches. Aries and Cabana used the cage in a lot of different ways and told a different story with a great ending. Aries and Cabana made great use of the gimmick. They both had to come through. They both knew they knew they had to come through in this match, and they both did. Um, all, 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 all true. Everything he said is true. Yeah, exactly. And they do. Gabe does compare it to the Joe of J match at one point on commentary. And I would say this isn't nearly. A, I mean, that match was one of the better matches of 2004. But I will say Gabe is completely right. Where this is great, but in a different way. Like it's, it's a different kind of match. Yes, exactly. But, um, so the Observer added, 
Aries beat Colt Cabana in a strong cage match that was said to be the best match of the night. Sapolsky planned for Aries to win in the middle, but Aries came in with his own idea and asked to do a deal where Cabana would climb over the cage and be hanging and about to drop down when Aries would do a tope cajilo through the door onto nothing, but by doing so, hit the floor first for the win. It could have been bad if the timing wasn't perfect, but it was. So, interesting note there that actually, you know, Aries was the one who came up with that idea. Well, so. I mean, I, you know, I feel like that's the sort of thing a wrestler has to come up with, you know? Like, you know, as opposed to Gabe saying, oh yeah, you need to, you're going to definitely do a dive onto nothing, and that's going to be how we finish this match. You know, like, I, I, I feel like that's not something that a booker, especially one that never wrestled, would come up with or ask a guy to do. But maybe yeah. I'm not, maybe I'm naive. <laughs> Or maybe not even think that they're capable of it. Like, just right. maybe that's not an idea you pop into your head because that's part of what makes it so cool is because you don't really think. In fact, going back where I said that I did have a minor flaw, I will say my one flaw in this is because they use the cage so well, it almost makes you think, like, why would a guy ever try and escape the cage by climbing it? Like, late in the, like the end of the match where Colt climbs the cage once he has Ares down, like, they had done so many good quick door teases where I part of me thought, like, you idiot, why are you taking the longest way to get out of this? Like why not just go for the door again? Well I've always but, th- well I've always thought that. So that that didn't this didn't affect me in that way. <laughs> I yeah, you you're right, but I, I just feel I guess I feel like because this match did so many good spots with the door, it kinda just hammered it into my head, like, oh something that you've you realized for a while, which is like, oh yeah, you could you could just leave the door go out the door. That seems to be the easiest way. Exactly. But anyway. After the match, Ares goes to leave until the ref, and I don't know if this was a shoot or or not, so to speak, but the ref, you can actually hear him say, like, or motion, like, go do a handshake. And so then Ares, at this point, he was, like, going down the aisle, like, goes back into the ring, Colts selling on the outside, and Ares then motions, like, come on, get in, like, theatrically at this point, but, like, get him in. Colt comes in the ring, and they do actually shake hands, and we get a loud dueling chant. So even though Generation X is still supposed to be heels at this point, I mean, this is kind of a babyface ending where they have, like, a mutual respect. Colt, well, whatever anger he had, it wasn't enough to not shake his hand at the end. And so there's another feud ending, a show with a lot of feuds ending. Um, backstage, Sugar Sean Price finds Homicide and gives him Brian Danielson's message to meet him in the parking lot. Homicide just chuckles and says he'll be there. And that brings us to the main event, a scramble cage match with, as Matt mentioned earlier, another stipulation that seemed to be added between shows. The winner of this match gets 10 times their pay. The loser has to leave Ring of Honor for 90 days. The Ring Crew Express defeated Asriel and Dixie, Generation Next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong, Special K of Deranged and Izzy, and the Carnage Crew in 10 minutes, 31 seconds, when Marcos pinned Loke after he hit a senton off the platform, off the shoulders of Dunn, through a table. And so for people that just forget, scramble cage matches are cage matches where there are four platforms, one in each corner, with the idea being, hey, wrestlers can um, do crazier things if they have a sure footing to stand on top of the cage. And the other thing is a scramble cage match. The rules for this are two teams start out. I think they wrestle for either two or three minutes. And then every minute after that, a team comes in the ring and fall. The end of the match ends when one person, when one person person scores a pin or submission and pins of submissions do not count until every team is in the match. So with that being said, Matt, uh, what'd you think about this big, crazy excuse to do big, crazy things? Yeah. I'd say this was the least impactful of these 
you know, when the other three, the first one at Made Event Spectacles was, was very good for what it was. I liked the one from At Our Best. I thought it was a good, dramatic, like, fun, like we called it the dessert ending of that show. Yeah. Uh, Scramble, Cage, uh, Melee. Uh, Me- Melee is, uh, it was interesting for what it was. I thought this one was pretty forgettable. Um, very rushed. Um, like those, those, like those uh, entrances after the first one, they were supposed to be a minute each, and maybe they were, but they felt like even less than a minute. Um, you know, once you got through the guys actually coming down, um, I actually thought the person who I enjoyed the most in this match was Roderick Strong at the beginning, and he was out of the match pretty quickly because he got hurt. But, yeah. um, but like you know, at the beginning, like he he picked up Izzy, lawn darted him into the cage. He was like suplexing people onto the cage, you know, um, and then then like. Before you know it, he's out of there. Um, um, and then, you know, Azrael and Dixie, like, they're supposed to be the serious special K, but when they come out, they just look, like, scared. Like, yeah. And it's just like, I mean, are they supposed to be the baby faces? Because that's not serious. It just seems like they're wimps. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, you know, you know, it's like a lot of basics, you know, not basic spots, but just stuff you would expect. Carnage crew hit their neckbreaker razor's edge. Um Dunn and Marcos do stage dives off the platforms like they did in um, – like they did at the Scramble Cage Melee. Um, Azriel tries to suplex Evans off the platform and Evans throws him off and like – and actually he does like what Gabe even calls a Cactus Jack style bump but it's more of like a McFoley style bump. But I mean a uh, Mankind style bump off the Hell in the Cell but into the ring. Like he just does – like he flips over, lands pretty hard and then Evans does a 450 onto Dunn. And Gabe says, "On to Dunn, who might be done," which uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty good, Gabe. Um, <laughs> Devito does a moonsault off the platform onto a pile of people. Asriel actually does a double stomp off the top onto the back of Izzy's neck, and he sells like his legs are totally blown out. At least I think he was selling. Um, then there's a spot where everyone just like leaves the ring, and like the camera is not on the ring, so you can't tell why it's happening. So it just seems like everyone is just like ran- like someone tilted the ring, and everybody fell out the door. Uh, I like it just it was just really strange. Like, did you notice that that like when everyone was falling out of the door, you couldn't see what was happening that would that was causing them to fall out? Yeah, that that, that was definitely strange. Yeah, so everyone's just falling out the door, and Carnage Crew get a table and bring it back into the cage, and then Devito. Teases pile driving Izzy off the platform, but Don low blows the veto, and that allows Izzy to hit like a crazy Phoenix splash thing to the outside onto a bunch of people, which I believe he might have actually done in the first scramble cage match too. Um, but that leaves just uh, Don and Marcos and the Carnage crew left in the ring, and that's when they do, like you said, the assisted senton off the platform through Loke through a table for the win. Um, it was just a bunch of spots. I, you know, it's not a match I'm ever going to think about again. It was very rushed. Um, I guess there was nothing wrong with it per se, if you like this kind of thing, but it didn't feel totally necessary. I kind of think that the title match should have been the main event. I mean, I get that they kind of booked this the way they booked at our best with like the dinner, then the dessert, but mm-hmm. I feel like this dessert was not decadent enough to, uh, uh, to uh, earn its spot ahead of the dinner. I like this match a fair bit more than you. I thought this was very good as a crazy spot fest because for me, this match kind of accomplished what I want from crazy spot fest, which is I don't overstay your welcome. And this didn't, it was only 10 minutes. That I can agree. That I can agree with. (laughs) 
and, and kind of just get to the crazy stuff. Like there is no, I don't mean to demean the wrestlers. There's a lot of wrestlers in this match. I really like, and I'm sure there's a lot of work put into this match, but there's no art in this match. It, it, this match is a spot delivery system. It's, you know, I, I thought strong and Evans and, um, deranged and, um, Izzy actually looked fairly good against each other. Like I thought, I came away wanting to see them get like a 10 minute match to themselves. You know, I agree. Strong looked really good, even though he's not the flyer. He lawn darted Izzy from the cage through the open door into the barricade. That was such a crazy spot. And then, yeah, um, strong apparently is, has to go to the back, like halfway through the match with like a legit injured ankle. Um, there was a moment I also liked where deranged does a headlight scissor satellite head scissors to strong. And it, while he's doing it, he's falling out of his pants and you can see his underwear and he like still finishes the move, which kudos to him, I guess. Um, but overall, this match was basically just three very quick things. It was stage one an opening like two minute tag match stage two was all the teams rapidly coming in. And I agree with you. They it felt like they were coming in very quickly and just every, everyone taking turns. That's going to do a spot off the top of the cage. Take your, you know, do your move, take your turn. Then after that, everyone got out of the ring except a few people. So they, for a couple minutes so that the carnage crew could set up their table spot for the finish. And then at the very end, once it was set up, okay, here's the big spot through a table. And again, like there, it, the match was just, do you want to see a few big spots off the top of the cage? Do you want to see a big crazy ending? That's about it. And, and I also completely agree with you. I had the same notes that um, Asriel and Dixie, who are supposed to be baby faces, they're the only team that is scared to get in the cage. And Gabe is trying to defend them on commentary and being like, well, since no one can win the match until all the teams are in, it's smart for them to stay on the outside. Like, why would they? But it just made them look like complete wusses. Like when he, when the heels teams aren't scared, like it just it again another. This was a night with a few kind of odd character choices, but that was one of them. And it's also it's not like they were making facial expressions, like like we're being clever. Like they just look scared. <laughs> yeah, and they did go in eventually. They just and, and it was kind of sucks for Dixie and Ezreal um, too because the one good thing from a match standpoint about having a new team come in like every minute or two is, is that you run into the ring and you have like a minute where like all the attention in the match is on you. And they're the only team that really didn't get that. They never got to really run wild, like with all the focus on them because their entire minute they spent being scared on the outside. And I felt bad for them. Yeah, I was like, it's weird. if you, if you've been booked this way that you're, you're being done a disservice, but, um, you're being done a so- Mark. You're being done a Marcos. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're the new Gabe Sapolsky of commentary. That's right. Um, Dangerous! So, <laughs> so uh, the PW Chorch did write about that Roderick Strong injury, that Roderick Strong suffered sprained ligaments in his ankle and knee on Saturday. He will be on crutches for one week, but will be able to return to action on March 5th. Um, the Observer wrote, Strong legitimately injured his ankle, du- ankle during the match, although it was not from a crazy move in a match that was filled with crazy dives. So that's the, that is kind of the, the funny part of this. In a match with a bunch of people diving from the top of the cage, the guy that got hurt was Roderick Strong just wrestling. Hurt his ankle, which is yeah, I mean, a you, weird you, little twist. You can sprain your ankle just walking, you know? Like, that can happen to somebody. So, hey, what, what can you do? I mean, Melter's the guy. I remember, uh, you know, he said this multiple times over the years that, like, a lot of times wrestlers, like, including the guys you think are going to break their neck on the crazy spots, when they do get hurt, oftentimes it is, like, 
a completely innocuous move that you wouldn't think would hurt and it just something kind of goes wrong yeah you're not taking it seriously enough you you know you think it's a, it's an easy thing to do and oops you know you hurt yourself but um so that ends the matches, but we still have a little bit of segments. We go backstage where Gary Michael Capetta is joined by Alex Shelley. Shelley is in, is talking about being kicked out of Ge- Generation Next, and he says, it's like coming home and seeing your girlfriend in bed with another guy, which, like, Aries and Strong and Evans didn't really join anyone else at this point. I would say to Shelley, it's more like your wife kicks you out of the house and just lives there alone now. Like, but maybe that doesn't sound as cool. But anyway, he says he has to accept it and deal with it in the best way he can. Alex says he's trying to earn the respect of the entire Ring of Honor locker room. He said, I tried that tonight with Jimmy Jacobs. I stuck out my hand and Jimmy rejected it. Shelley admits that Generation Next were punks who took the easy road when they could have been learning from veterans like Mick Foley and Ricky Steamboat and CM Punk, Samoa Joe, Brian Danielson. Shelley says he apologizes to the entire Ring of Honor locker room and he could try to make good on what he did wrong. Uh, he then he, he then says he also wants Austin Aries title and he wants revenge on Roderick Strong for laying him out at final at um a recent show. Uh, Shelley also says that even though he's not friends right now with anyone in the Ring of Honor locker room, he has their back against Generation X. So yeah, this was seeing? this was definitely shot on VHS. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was going to ask like. I don't know if it was just the copy of this or what. No, no, I, no. Can I remember on my on my original the DVD? Same thing. Yeah, this was this was definitely shot on VHS. There must have been something that happened to their their DV cameras or something like that. Maybe they ran out of tapes or something. But this was definitely shot on on VHS. It had to be. Yeah, for those who don't watch the show, basically from this segment on, the video quality of every segment till the end of the show takes like a noticeable like two or three notch downturn from as matt said likely it being shot on probably on vhs instead of the regular digital video um it's out it's outright jarring i would say actually but um cut to the carnage crew somewhere else backstage they're nearly in tears and are screaming about losing luxus the ring crew express are his own students which i don't know if this is if that's something he ever acknowledged before on ring of honor like programming and he says they've sent now those students have sent them home for 90 days DeVito is super pissed about having to go home for 90 days. Uh, he screams something like, I won't go back to my – like he says something like, like uh, he's, I'm not going back to my wife. Like, no. And then they vow that they're going to come back even crazier in 90 days. So this is the uh, the start of, um, I guess, the Ring Crew Express Carnage Crew feud, which obviously won't kick off for a while. But um, Ring Crew Express Carnage Crew coming up. Here's the thing about this. Like, Loke is mad that, like, his own students did them this to him. But, like, haven't they been beating the crap out of the Ring Crew Express since their very first match? Yeah. I, I, and, um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, no. Yeah, you have a good point there. But, you know, these guys are jerks. They, they don't give a shit. They think they should be able to beat them up forever. Right. Um, next we go to Brian Danielson in sweatpants and the most garish orange sweater in the parking lot. I almost want to start a blog that is just Brian Danielson indie wrestling fashion choices because, boy, there are a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, Brian uh, Brian Danielson has upped his, uh, like, even though, like, you know, WWE makes fun of him as not being, like, cool, he has upped his style game so much in the past 15 years. It's, (laughs) it's incredible. Like, it's, 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 he's like a a different guy. (laughs) Like Brian, Dan- if I could describe Brian Danielson's fashion sense in early 2005, it would be whatever my friend brings me home from the Goodwill. <laughs> that's, no, that's I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure he's proud to say that's true. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
so I, I just wrote in my notes. So anyway, Brian Dennison's in the parking lot. He's screaming for Homicide to show up. I just wrote in my notes, imagine seeing a guy with a scraggly beard in an orange sweater in a parking lot in the middle of the night screaming the word <laughs> Homicide. Homicide, Homicide, yeah. <laughs> I thought that too. In, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, no less. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're lucky someone didn't call the cops on them. Yeah. Um, Homicide shows up, the two brawl. It's a fairly pretty intense brawl. They throw each other into the side of the ring truck. They brawl back into the building where the where the ring crew ex- not the ring crew express, but the general ring crew is taking down everything and they pull them apart. Danielson screams out that he's gonna kill Homicide, so and just another thing to continue their feud. It is funny though that they, they round each other into the ring truck because I thought for a second, you know. Their first match ended with um, Brass Knucks, uh, and then their second match ended up being a tape fist match. This match should end in one of those um, those matches they had in the back of the truck, like Dustin Rhodes and the Blacktop Bully did it uncensored. Clearly, that's this is where this is going. But sadly, they did not spring for that. Yeah, I mean, they um, they, they, they do a two second brawl in the parking lot, and they're back in the re- then they're back in the arena. Then they get bro- then it gets broken up. It, you know, it makes you wonder what the point of all this was. <laughs> so um. Then we go somewhere else where a graphic tells us three days later and Colt Cabana is dressed in his tuxedo t-shirt and bandages on his head for a good times, great memories, late show. I bet it was, I bet it was seven days later in real life. (laughs) His guest is Bobby Heenan. Uh, Bobby quickly goes into a promo on Cornette saying he was in diapers when Bobby was leading people to the top. Uh, Bobby takes a call as Colt says he will have Bobby's back in Chicago. Not much to this, just hyping up the match two shows away. Yep. And that is Ring of Honor's third anniversary celebration, part one. A lot happened on that show. A lot to watch. A lot of matches. A lot of angles. Feuds ended. We saw some feuds starting up. Um, Matt, it's almost kind of hard to sum up this show because there is so much, especially when I know you both you and I generally watch these shows in pieces rather than in one or two sittings. It's a, kind of a lot to kind of add up into one opinion i think um what do you think yeah i I agree with that i think there's definitely some some things that didn't work too well and i do think the show was unequivocally too long um you know like when all-star extravaganza which was like the other super long show i feel like that one earned its length a little bit more like it had like the biggest match of the year in terms of like hype like in build up it had some other really big like star versus star matches um the uh the first uh Homicide versus uh, Danielson match in a while, uh, low key versus Aries, the whole Heenan Cornette thing. But um, but this one was just long and like it didn't have those really big marquee matches. The biggest thing was going to be the Joe Foley confrontation, and it didn't turn out to be big. Like it turned out to be interesting, I guess, but not big. It had the tag title change. It had a lot going on, and some of, a lot of it was pretty good, and one of the things was great, but it shouldn't have been this long. I don't know what they should have cut out. Um, maybe the first Ebison match didn't need to be there. Um, maybe that, maybe they, they should have figured out something else to do with Foley and Joe that wouldn't have t- taken up as much time. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, honestly, the scramble cage was probably not completely necessary on this show as much as I know you enjoyed it and it was it was pretty entertaining I don't think that was a necessary thing to have on here um, when you had so much other stuff two Jay Lethal matches maybe not totally necessary even though it was the hometown guy you get my point there was yeah. there was there was a lot of stuff so I think that's my biggest nitpick but 
all in all, it was good. Like it was like the by, like the fact that the crowd was as lively as it was by the end of the show for the last two matches. The fact that the main like the title match delivered. The fact that up and down the card there was a lot of entertaining stuff. Like this was still a good show. I just think it could have been a great show if they had figured out a way to make it a little bit more tight and impactful. I agree completely. I thought this was a good show, but the problem was like it was a good show, but the longer a show gets, like it needs to be more than just fair, like better, a little bit better than average, like fairly good because, you know, it's a lot to ask for someone to sit down to watch for four plus hours of wrestling. And, and a lot, most people aren't lunatics. They watch wrestling in one, they'll watch a show in one sitting, although you don't have to. And I would argue a lot of times it's better, but like, I think my opinion probably would be would have changed if I had to watch this show live in one sitting, especially knowing that live it was five hours and also had that do or die pre-show. But yeah, it, it's just nothing on this show was bad. It's just there was a lot of fairly good, but nothing special. And, and, and when and, and when it, and that's to me acceptable. If it's a two-hour show, or it's a three-hour show. If it's a four-hour show, you can't have too much stuff like that because at that point, it's just. You know, Matt, it's like, um, I don't know, it's like instant mashed potatoes. This is another great Trevor Dame food analogy. Instant mashed potatoes, they aren't the worst tasting thing in the world. If you have a little dollop on the side of a good meal, you'll be happy. You'll accept it. But if someone said, here, eat like a giant, huge bowl of instant mashed potatoes with nothing else, you're probably not going to enjoy that, even though it's the same food. Cause or, it's just- or if someone slaved over dinner for hours and it was the quality of instant mashed potatoes. Yeah, it's just too much of a of a okay thing can end up being a not great thing. But overall, good show. I would say if you for some reason wanted a more abbreviated version of this, I would say just watch from the Mick Foley segment on because you would get the noteworthy Ebison thing, you would get um the great cage match, you would get the pretty good Danielson homicide match and you would get the crazy um, cage match, and that's probably what maybe an hour and a half, two hours there. So that's fair. And, noth- and nothing that you that came before that. There was some decent stuff, but nothing I would say that came before that was absolutely essential to see. I'm thinking my my favorite thing on the early part of the show, and I know you didn't like it as much, but it might have been the opener for me. I, it, I, it was a, it was a decent opener, you know. Yeah. But overall, though, if you're if you're a really hardcore Ring of Honor fan or you're a completionist, you're not gonna you're not gonna feel bad that you watch this show. It's just it's it's a lot, but it, it's it's decent, and um, that brings us to the end of the show. So, if you want to contact us, if you want to solve Ring of Honor mysteries for us, our email is through the years at gmail.com. That's t h r o h at gmail.com. Our Twitter, I am at Trevor Dame, D-A-M as in Mother E, at, on Twitter. Matt is at Mayor MGF. Um, we have a, a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Forum plug section. And uh, yeah, in t- next time we will be covering the third anniversary celebration part two in Dayton featuring the return for one night, or is it, of AJ Styles against Jimmy Rave and the Ring of Honor debut of future champion James Gibson plus CM Punk versus Alex Shelley, whole bunch of other stuff. And that, that show, but that, sh- that show, by the way, got a lot of hype at the time as being like the best ROH show ever when it first happened. So I'm very curious to see how it holds up. And the best part, Matt, it's three hours. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, okay, so that I uh, hope you're. Hope you guys join us then. Until next time, have a good time. 
Have a great time. Stay home for Thanksgiving.